Hello, my fellow Westorians. Welcome back to the last, for a little while, episode of Valar Reredus for the World of Ice and Fire. We're going to be getting House of the Dragon coverage shortly. And we've finished off these last few weeks of Valar Reredus with some dragony topics. We had Dragonstone. We had the free city of Lys, Lys, Lys. All the three, all three of those cities we covered. And now today we have... King Daron the first, the young dragon, very young indeed, didn't reign for very long, but it was a very interesting and tumultuous reign that comes after a period we're about to get very familiar with. This is post Dance of the Dragons era, about 26 years after the dance ended, King Daron took the throne or ascended to the throne. He didn't take it. He was next in line. There was no sh shenanigans. And he was born in 243, or 143, so 12 years after the dance. So yeah, a very, very interesting figure. We're going to talk about it. We're going to have fun. Sean, what did you bring to drink today while you talk about the young dragon? Well, actually, I'll talk about my drink, but I had a quick question sure. about the young dragon. Was he called the young dragon in his own time? And that's where the young wolf came from for Rob? Or do we call him the young dragon now because Rob was called the young wolf? Ah, good question. Well, I don't know if he was called the young dragon in his time. That's a great question. We don't know a lot about him as a person. We know a lot about what he did. But he. one of the topics we have today is that it's sort of like Aegon the Conqueror, who was called Aegon the Dragon. And Daron was also called Daron the Dragon or the young dragon because they were similar in a lot of ways, not in lifespan. <laughs> and <laughs> of course, Aegon, uh, Daron had no dragons, but young dragon, dragon, he's sort of like the one that was most like him, right? Uh, yeah, we really don't know if people called him that during his life. I think so. I, th I would guess yes. If I had, to, uh, since you're asking, I'm going to guess yes, but it's not confirmed. Don't get me wrong. I'm excited to talk about my drink, but I wonder <laughs> if someone in there, I wonder if someone in there in the chat can like find the first instance of when he was called the young dragon uh, in the text. Well, he was and what was his, his the first appearance of his name is in John's first chapter in Game of Thrones. He comes up right away because he but was he called the young dragon. Yeah, but that was okay. you know, but that's okay. long after he was dead. We still don't know if he was called that while he was alive. But still, before anyone would have called Rob the young wolf. Oh, yes. Because, right. abs and absolutely, that's one of the last things we'll talk about is how well Rob's career parallels yeah. Daron's. And it was one of the, it was in fact the first real catch for our Parallel Live series. It was the one that started it all. We've done a lot of those Parallel Lives tweets and we did an episode on it and we love to do that sort of comparison. That was the first one <laughs> for, for me. <laughs> Another thing you said in there that I know is going to end up happening. I assume it's going to end up happening through the course of this. But the idea that we don't necessarily know a lot about him as a person or his character, but I think we can construe a lot yeah. from the details that we do. I mean, we're not necessarily right. We can't be sure, but I think we can make some decent assumptions, Absolutely. which I imagine a lot of the characters in House of the Dragon, that's going to be the scenario that we know like names and dates from what Martin wrote. But this show is going to be able to somewhat fill in, however accurately in George's mind, you know, the personalities and the emotions and, and such behind those names and dates. But yeah. anyway. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Right on. I've got the Blue Mountain Dew. Blue Mountain Dew. <laughs> yes. Which I don't find as often, but when I do, I always get it because it's my favorite one. Mm. Along with the standard berry protein naked drink and bang, the, the raspberry bang, which goes well with the Blue Mountain Dew, which is also is very raspberry flavors. bang blue. The bangs are all well. M- almost all the bangs are clear. They're just completely oh, clear. I okay. think they have like some chocolate flavors and some tea flavors. It might have color. I if I had them, I don't remember what the colors were. But all the like the berry or the mango, whatever, they're all just completely clear. So. These people need to start sponsoring us. <laughs> <laughs> I already got Nathan Fielder sponsoring. I know you're pitching their stuff for free here. Like, you're, you're becoming an advocate. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So. Uh, grab yourself a tasty beverage, folks. We've got plenty to talk about today. Shout out to our friend Nina, goodqueenally with one L dot tumblr dot com. That's her blog. Her current most latest post is on Cargarian names. Rah, Damon, Daron, Agan, names like Agan, Agon. I've, I usually some people say Agan. I don't usually do that, but it came out that way just now. She's doing an article on all five Targaryen names. <laughs> That's ridiculous, Sean. There's six. No. <laughs> well, we have more to say about that in a minute, but let's get through the rest of our intro process here. And one of those amazing things that we don't that we have to talk about today in our intro process that we don't normally have to talk about is that we're going to Santa Fe this week this current week, to watch the new episode of House of the Dragon, the first episode, a little bit early at George R. R. Martin's Theater. And we're going to interview him right before the episode. So he should be in a really good mood right before the episode. So hopefully that goes really well. If we can do half as well as Game of Thrones did with their interview, we'll be doing a good job. <laughs> but we're going we're gonna to approach things a little differently, but hope to get a similar quality finished product from that. But I'm sure it'll be good because... George is going to be talking and there's no, how, yeah. uh, the bar is pretty, pretty low for that. If George is talking, you're going to have a good time. But, so, but that does mean that we'll be asking some listeners, some fan submitted questions. The interview is on August 18th. So if you're listening to this after August 18th, it's too late. But if you're listening to it before August 18th, you can go to the Facebook group or our Discord or to Twitter, reply to the tweet or the post and give us your question. Yeah. And if you if your question gets asked, we'll read your name out loud. So you get your name read to George and then it'll be on the episode. So the best questions from y'all will we'll get in there as well. And George is going to let you ask about 86,000 questions. So you'll be able to get them all in, right? <laughs> That's correct. Our plan is to <laughs> kidnap him and take him off to like a misery type situation where we chain him <laughs> to a typewriter. And yeah, you know, 
He's either going to be writing wins or answering questions. And that's it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So you can listen to that interview and it's published as well as the rest of our episodes, our full catalog, minus the bonus episodes, which are behind a paywall. But all of our free episodes are on Spotify, Google Play, Amazon Music, and on Patreon. You can get the bonus episodes there. And you can also get them on Spotify by becoming a paid subscriber of History of Westeros. And you can go to our website, historyofwesteros.com, which can do things for you like take you directly to a specific chapter in Valar Aridus via YouTube. We've got all sorts of great ways to consume our content. And if you want to participate, not only can you ask questions potentially to George through us, but you can ask us questions in all of our live streams, either during or before. You can join us on Discord or Facebook to submit questions ahead of time or Patreon or send us an email. Or if you're in the live chat, you can post them in the comments there and Ashea will hopefully see it and we'll get to it. Our question to you, as always, is the trivia question we start with. I do want some feedback on these. Are these questions too hard? I know they're hard. I make them hard on purpose, but are they too hard? I don't know if people mind. Like sometimes if the question is too hard, I don't know if that's a problem. But yeah, weigh in. No, so far no one's told me that. But I'll go ahead and ask. If they're too hard, let me know. And I'll try to I'll try to do it a little differently. I would say they're definitely too hard for the average person, (laughs) even the average fan, but not for our average viewer. Yeah, that's what I'm aiming for. I want them to be difficult, but maybe if they're too I think someone's gotten it correct every time so far, so that's an indication that it's not too hard. Okay, I thought there were a few people didn't get, but maybe not. All right, let's see how this one I might be misremembering. We know the names of two of King Daron the First's Kingsguard. One of them is the very famous Aemon the Dragon Knight, who is the other... We know his full name and his nickname, so give yourself credit if you get either, and double credit if you know both his name and his nickname. Hint, a POV character who shares this man's house thinks of seeing today's answers death memorialized on tapestry back home where they came from. Uh That was part of why... I was asking if they're too hard, if I should start giving a little more hint here and there, because I don't think that gives it away, but it might get you on the right track. So I'll try to get better. That hint might be too hard. (laughs) Yeah, it might make it harder. I don't know. Anyway. That could be its own trivia question. It narrows it down to a POV character's house. That helps. That should help a lot. It's not House Wild, or there's lots of other houses that don't have POV. It's not a fray. (laughs) I don't think there's been a fray Kingsguard anyway, but maybe there is. A lot of unknown Kingsguard. There could have been a fray Kingsguard. That hint also reveals it's a man. That's true. That's true. That's true. (laughs) Something that really excites me about this topic, and Sean, you touched on this a little bit about the unknownness of this topic, about the unknownness of this character. Unknownness isn't a word, but I just used it, and you knew what I meant. It is now. (laughs) (laughs) It's exciting because of the hugely positive direction the Game of Thrones franchise is going. We know enough on this character to do a big episode. We have a particularly long document today, and we always have a long document. That's what she said. But there's a lot of missing detail, a lot of open mysteries. Example, the one we started with. We don't know his personality very well. He was the last Targaryen to wield Blackfire in combat that we know of. That's kind of cool. He's not the last one to have it. Aegon IV had it. After all, he gave it to Daemon Waters, who became Daemon Blackfire. But we're pretty sure Aegon IV never fought with Blackfire. He just held on to it and kept looking fancy. So Daron I, yeah, he is a lot like Aegon the Conqueror, shorter-lived, hidden personality, similar nickname, very capable, very confident, very driven. But what drove him? What did he think needed doing? Why did he think it was important? Was it just like teenage 
Verve. He's like, I'm going to go conquer something or I'm, I got to go be violent. I don't know, but it could just be that, but there might be more to it. Maybe he had some dreams. Maybe the dreams of the conqueror were passed down. Maybe something he read in a book. Maybe he read the same book Rhaegar read. Who knows? That's a big open mystery. And if this ever hits TV, and I think it could because it's a great story. It's a really interesting, compelling time period. This detail would have to be filled in. I appreciate that you drew the Rhaegar parallel because if I understand right, his character wasn't really a warmonger. He ended up training to be a warrior, recognized, it was part of his role in leadership or whatever. Yeah. Could be something similar with Daron, right? Yeah. He might not have necessarily wanted to go to war, but he might have needed, might have realized on some level it might be better for the stability of the kingdom. He might have had someone whispering in his ear, the, all kinds of factors. Yeah. yeah, whispering in your ear. I think that's a big one. I mean, and I think we're going we're gonna to get to some not evidence of that, but the suggestion of that possibility during the episode. Another really big... Never mind a, a dragon dream, yeah, by the way. Absolutely. Too, right? so, and, and I'm glad you mentioned that too, because dragon dreams, the most of the dragon dreams we know of happened after the dragons were gone. And it definitely happened before that. Definitely. Although maybe they weren't dragon dreams, they were just dreams, prophetic dreams. Like Danny's the dreamer, her dream about the doom, obviously that happened while there were still dragons around. There were still Valyria around when that happened. There was a lot of dragons, but most of the dreamers were post-dragon era. And of course, that's also, we have better records of this time. Still, one of the other compelling things here is Daron broke the Iron Throne's promise. Aegon the Conqueror, for whatever reason, and this is an, an, a long-term mystery that maybe one day we'll get deeper into or, or get clarity on, he backed down from Dorne. They had their war, Dorne brought him a letter, Aegon read the letter, got really mad, flew off to Dragonstone, came back and said, okay, we're not attacking Dorne anymore ever again. He says, permanent peace. And that peace held, minus some raiding back and forth, little stuff, stuff that you wouldn't call the fault of the Iron Throne, just individuals doing stuff. But Daron absolutely broke this promise, this pledge that his ancestor made, permanent peace with Dorne. So it's not just a, I'm going to attack Dorn. He broke this promise. So there's is he, another parallel to Rob. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. So we'll, we'll, we'll have to think about that and keep our eye out for ideas. We don't, we don't have an answer, but it's, it's, it's a worthy theorizing. We know a lot more about the second Daron who brought Dorn into the realm peacefully <laughs> via marriage <laughs> rather than this way. But without Daron the first starting it all up again, confusing the issue, bringing it back to the front. What happened with Daron the second may not have happened. There may not have been an impetus to become peaceful. It may have just been two independent kingdoms still at that point. But because all this happened and because there were promises broken and hostilities really bad on both sides, there was a need for peace. And well, that's what happened later. And we know a lot more about Darren the second, partly because his uh, kingship takes place during the Blackfire and Duncan Egg eras, which we just have a lot more on. I was about to ask how much farther, how much longer was that? Like 100 years? No, not even. Okay, Daron the first took the throne and became king. I said that again, took the throne. Ascended in 157. He was the heir. And Daron the second ascended in, was it 182? Or 184? I forget. I always get those two mixed up. One of them is when he knighted... I think it was 184. 184. And then, so not like 100 years, but well more than one generation. It was... Yeah, it was about two. Yeah. <laughs> there were two kings in between Daron okay. and, and Daron. But one of the kings was only for one year. It was Aegon the Unworthy, mostly his reign. And then 
his dad, Viserys, reigned for one year. Viserys II. Something that they have in common apart from name, the Darons, is that they were both dragonless. And they also, that we'll both, we'll know a lot more about them when Fire and Blood 2 comes out. At which point, quite a few topics we've covered will be worth supplementing, if not entirely revisiting. So that's what excites me about this topic, is we have so much to say about this topic, and we haven't even seen the like up-close version of it when it's chronicled more in more detail by the sources who were there, like a Gildane or someone who he borrowed from, rather than Eandel, who will be writing about the events far later and was doing more of an overview of times like this. He didn't focus on the Targaryen, the Targaryens as much as Fire and Blood does. So that's awesome. So thinking of everything we have looked forward to, Really makes me feel lucky. I hope you do too. We're on the cusp of much bigger things and future looks bright. First mentions. Let's do that like we usually do. The first mention in the world of Ice and Fire itself comes during the reign of Daron's father, Aegon III, the Dragonbane. It was a broken reign that followed, for Aegon himself was broken. He was melancholy to the end of his days, found pleasure in almost nothing, and locked himself in his chambers to brood for days on end. He likewise came to dislike being touched even by the hand of his beautiful queen. Even after she flowered, he was long in calling her to his bed. But ultimately, their marriage was blessed with two sons and three daughters. The eldest, Daron, was named the Prince of Dragonstone and heir apparent. That's another just complete hole for us. We have no idea the relationship between Aegon III and his firstborn, Daron. And, well, Aegon was a very traumatized king. He was not a happy person. He had a lot of things go terribly for him. Saw, saw a lot of awful things during the dance. Things that we'll see on screen. So this maybe is a response. Maybe Daron is so full of energy and ambition just in part because his father so wasn't. You see that a lot of times when a parent or older sibling is an extreme personality that maybe their next sibling or another member of the family comes out somewhat opposite. I don't know why Tommen? that happens, but it does happen. Yeah, Tommen. Perfect example, Sean. That's a fantastic well, example. Well, Tommen is good, but I actually said Tywin. Oh, Tywin's okay. father, Tidos, yeah. But You're yeah, right. Okay, both Tommen examples are great. <laughs> Tywin and Tommen. Tommen's super different than his real parents and his older brother, and Tywin very different than Tytos. Yeah, hugely different than Tytos. Different than, we'll say Tommen is different than his biological parents, but also the father that, quote unquote, raised him too. Yeah, right? very true. Yeah, he's also different than than Robert. Yeah, even, yeah. And although Robert, yeah, like you said, in quotes, Robert didn't really raise him. Yeah. But he, was, <laughs> he was an influence. But you could still. Yeah, he was still a father figure. Is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nina points out, it's a little odd that Yandel says Aegon III was, quote, long in calling Daenerys to his bed, given that Daenerys was only 15 or 16 when Daron was born. This is maybe less a reflection of Daenerys actual age and more a comment on the length of time she had been queen. They were betrothed when she was like six. On the other hand, it could be this maester is confused why there he's not bothered by her age as a thing like we would be we'd be like that's too young. But in this setting, of course, there clearly that's not a problem for them. So he's like, why didn't he hook up with his hot wife? When he could, like he, what's stopping him? She was already 13, come on. Yeah, I feel like that's what this is, what, what's being said here. So it's like, ugh. But Aegon's also just highly traumatized. Like he's not into being touched. It's just what it says there. I mean, this, this maester, Yandel doesn't understand trauma. And it's a big, big part of it. He also doesn't understand. He's a maester, hasn't had a lot of relationships of his own. <laughs> so he just, from his perspective, he's like, I would do anything to, to be with a girl. I'm just stuck here with these books all day. There's no women around. So yeah, maybe that's why he doesn't get it. But, but also, there wasn't a lot of need 
for Aegon III to have children. He did, and it was a good thing, I suppose. But he had his brother, Viserys. And as we talked about last week, Viserys became married to Lara Rogara, who he was very into. And they already had kids. They had Their kids came first. So the future Aegon IV, Nerys, and Aemon the Dragon Knight, who will have a pretty big role this episode. So when Daron was born in 143, House Targaryen was not in danger of dying out or anything. Despite all the deaths during the dance, there were a good number of Targaryens left, and they were rebuilding. They were back to a healthy number of princes and princesses where you could have some tragedy, several dying at once, and there would still be quite a few left. And of course, there were no dragons. <laughs> well, actually, there were a few, but none that, none that could fight or intimidate anyone. And that's an important mention for the setting here in this nearly post-dragonless world. So the first mention, as I said in the intro, as Sean was asking some good questions there, is John 1, A Game of Thrones. Comes up super early, his first chapter, early mention. Definitely look at this as foreshadowing. Here's the quote. Daron Targaryen was only 14 when he conquered Dorne, John said. The young dragon was one of his heroes. A conquest that lasted a summer, his uncle pointed out. Your boar king lost 10,000 men taking the place and another 50 trying to hold it. Someone should have told him that war isn't a game. He took another sip of wine. Also, he said, wiping his mouth, Daron Targaryen was only 18 when he died. Or have you forgotten that part? <laughs> John's response is, I forget nothing. <laughs> 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 he's drunk and mad that he's in the back and he's surly and watching all the other people go and sit at the tie table. And he's, he's pretending it doesn't bother him and Benjamin knows otherwise. So it's pretty cool. It's a great comment. And it's really early. Like I said, first chapter, like one of the first things he does. And yeah, Daron Targaryen absolutely being set up, not just as a, as a parallel to Rob, but as a parallel to John. I mean, John also gets killed <laughs> at 18. <laughs> Rob and leads a lot of men, especially Rob more so than John leading the men to, to their death. Maybe that'll, maybe that's yet to come for John. <laughs> but John gets killed before leading the men uh, into battle, but not before he's a leader of men. Here's a twist, the meta twist that is the most peculiar kind, the kind of information that you probably won't get elsewhere. In many slash most editions, in this chapter only, Daron is spelled differently. It's spelled E-N instead of O-N. In only this one chapter, in only this one conversation, it's spelled that way twice. Then it's the normal way, the rest of the way out. Every other chapter, every other book. If you do a search of Ice and Fire right now, that's what you'll find. So I almost missed this. I knew this and had forgotten because I almost missed the first mention because it's spelled wrong. And then I was like, wait, there is that mention early on. I went back and found it. And then I went and checked my old copy from the 90s. It's spelled wrong there. And then we have a new, like, fancy gold foil limited edition copy we got as part of a gift package. And it's spelled correctly. So they did fix it at some point, but I have no idea when. There's so many editions of A Game of Thrones that it's, it's not the most important thing to track down. But there you go. I also didn't come across this quote. I was like, huh, I thought for sure. Yeah. That's why you didn't. <laughs> if you, yeah, if you had searched for the young dragon, you would have found it. That's mm -hmm. where it comes back up. Because I was like, why didn't I find that quote? And then I was like, oh yeah, it's spelled wrong. Perhaps the most unusual feature of this young warrior king was that he wrote a book. You don't think about kings writing books at all, let alone teenage kings. But it wasn't probably, there's a lot of reasons to think that it wasn't because he was an academic or just a guy who liked books. It was probably propaganda. It was probably meant to justify the conquest, to 
help maintain the conquest and a lot of other things. Still, it's very interesting that a king wrote a book about his conquest. And again, the, the conquest wasn't provoked. So he would maybe need to justify it or to distract from that or just, who knows, lots of different things. I'm super curious about that. I, I wonder if it's meant to show like what a prodigy he was, if that's maybe at least part of why Martin set this up. Or I wonder, do we even have enough detail? Is it possible he didn't really write it? Someone wrote it in his name or he instructed someone to write it and put his name on it. Even that would show a level of wisdom. Yeah. You know? But I also wonder if maybe it was a written... 10 years after he died and so on. <laughs> it's pretty clear that he For wrote the sake it. Of propaganda. It is pretty clear that he wrote okay. it, but he may have dictated it. That may be true. But yeah. but it, but there yeah. but there's lots of talk about his particular style, like his his particular okay. way of writing his information, which is important because it parallels it is an important parallel because it's it's very much a reference to Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, which we're going to talk about in a minute, which is also written very simply in part because the simple style allowed it to spread. More people read it, more people picked it up because it was so easy to read. And that's a, if you're writing a propaganda piece, you want it to disseminate as much as possible, right? So that's a pretty clever angle to this. Like, yeah, write it. It's like a simple pamphlet that everyone can read and maybe wants to read. It also disguised the propaganda-ish nature of it by being more straightforward. Yes, you know, exactly. That's, how could this simple... Yeah direct telling of events be propaganda well there you go you're right that's it it's mm -hmm. makes it more insidious the the fact that it's so simple and to the point conceals the fact that some of those points aren't accurate <laughs> yeah it also just pushes back on the idea that he's a warmonger like oh he's a scholarly writer king like how could he be a warmonger he's a writer mm -hmm. he's bookish so yeah it really just uh, it changes the view of him and nina really hones it on that with this comment and how we don't even think of him as a warmonger now like we do now we're thinking of that like as we discuss it but in history he's a celebrated he's are statues of him he's this hero who died too young they like benjamin says people just forget about all the people that died and how it all failed and like it didn't work like why is this guy a hero exactly and benjamin's yeah. kind of like <laughs> i don't really get it man like you shouldn't want to be like him he's he's being more diplomatic than that but that's definitely what he's saying <laughs> like for reading between the lines he's like don't i don't idolize that guy man like yeah don't do that that would be why we want to get closer to this kid's personality like was he glory hungry and just really capable at covering his tracks or would, did he really think it was justified like what's his what's his personality like that's that's there's a lot of room here or yeah supernatural did he think he had to dreams and all that stuff something some sort of combination of of the two or the three or the five I wonder if he might have been almost sociopathic if he just like yeah. went through this logical process of analyzing the state of affairs in the kingdom or whatever. And he just realized they wouldn't be expecting it. We have appropriate forces at this moment. We would gain this from it. It would help my legacy. I need to assert myself. I can imagine him looking at all these logical reasons why it would be a good move. And not being emotional over the people that are going to die because of yeah, it. You know? Yeah, that, that kind of removal from guilt and the deaths of commoners is, that's the, the standard parlance of, of powerful kings, I would suppose. They're, they've been raised that way from the get-go. Like you have to break a few eggs or break a few eggons to, <laughs> to have a kingdom. So yeah, like I said before, the dragons hadn't technically fully died out during Daron's youth. By the time he took the throne... I'm just going to keep saying took the throne, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> he, the, the dragons had died. 
But recall that Dunk says his master, Sir Arlen, saw the last dragon before it died. And that would have been in early in Daron's life, in the late 140s, early 150s, something like that. So Prince Daron actually saw the last dragon die under his father, who acquired the name Aegon the Dragonbane. So as King Daron, he would rule a fully dragonless Westeros. This might be some of the motivation. Not only do we have his sort of low-energy father, who wasn't a weakling. This isn't Titos, like being a pushover. But he wasn't overly strong either. He wasn't, shall we say, he wasn't uh, motivated. <laughs> he wasn't, didn't, wouldn't take the initiative necessarily. So maybe Daron wanted to show that House Targaryen was still a force to be reckoned with, even without dragons. He didn't want anyone getting any ideas about, now they don't have dragons. Let's, uh, maybe they're weak. In the time of Jaehaerys, Jaehaerys I, he changed policy from Aegon. Aegon the Conqueror would go from castle to castle with his huge retinue, having parties and just showing everybody he was in charge. Jaehaerys went very much the opposite. He went with a tiny retinue, usually arriving ahead of them on his dragon and just letting that do all the talking. He's like, hey, I'm your friendly king. While his huge menacing dragon sits there eating an entire aurochs for breakfast. And he's like, I'm your friend. I'm a good king. So the message is clear. It's like it's the it's plateau oplomo all over again. The old mafia conundrum, the silver or the lead, or in this case, the gold or the dragon fire. The dread. The gold or the dread. Yeah, that's great, John. <laughs> the blood or the dread. Behave and play nice and you'll never have to face this thing. <laughs> and that was enough. They got the message. It was a subtle yet very not subtle message. And they're like, yeah, he's all by himself. Kill him. No. There's more where he came from and there's more of those dragons too. Bigger than that one and that one's huge. You gotta be pretty stupid not to see that message. <laughs> and then Jairus relied on that. He's like, they're not stupid. They'll get it. It's also a little bit more, I can't quite think of how I want to describe it, but I want to say like arrogant or personal. He's like, I can mess y'all up all by myself. Don't make me mad. Like the other, the other way, when you show up with a large group and stay to have a party, it's like, we're all part of the same kingdom. We can work together. We can share our values and da da da. But this guy is like, don't make me mad. Yeah. <laughs> Even I by myself, never mind my legacy or the kingdom or the armies, whatever else, I can come mess you up anytime I want. So don't even yeah. come close to upsetting me. And he can remind people that like, hey, I'm not coming here and eating you out of house and home with my huge retinue. He's like, but I could if I wanted to. And that wouldn't be a declaration of war. That would be successful. Mm -hmm. Look, this is, you want me in charge rather than the guy before, because the guy before was Magor. So like, <laughs> like it's also, <laughs> yeah. he's also just, I'm the opposite of him. So there's that too. Yeah, I guess there are some some good positive ways to look at this yeah. appearance also. So yeah. it's con context is really important. As Jaehaerys was also sort of the opposite of Magor, which Daron is maybe the opposite of his father, Aegon III. But they can't do that anymore. They can't just fly a dragon over and be like, hint, hint. That subtlety is gone. They, they can't rely on that. They had to, maybe he was thinking they had to reestablish a little something, something because they don't have that anymore. Let's talk about the book a little more for a second. This Congress of Dorne is very obviously a Westerosi riff on Julius Caesar's commentaries on the Gallic War. This is Nina's writing here. Both are military histories and ethnographies that detail the stories of conquests of new territories by very capable military commanders and political leaders. Both books are noted for their simple, direct style of writing, with Caesar's book being often studied to this day by Latin students because of its strict adherence to Latin grammar rules. It doesn't matter if it's lying. 
if you're just learning, reading it to learn grammar. So when Caesar aimed to for it to spread and be well-read, he couldn't have realized how well that succeeded. <laughs> it's still read to this day, not because of its value as a military textbook, not because it's a super valuable history book, although those things are in there too, but because it just, it's useful to teach people Latin. Check this out. Caesar's book says, all Gaul is divided into three parts. And then he goes and describes those three parts, the Belgi, the Aquitani, and the Celts, or Gauls in his case, he calls them. Different words for different ethnicities back then, right? And he talks about how they have different language, customs, laws, and appearances, right? What does Darren's book get into? The sandy, stony, and salty Dornishmen divided into three parts, mountains, shores, deserts, right? <laughs> they look different. They have different cultures. Some of them have more first men blood. Some of them have more Andal blood, etc. Yeah, so very, very heavy influence there. The Latin, it's called a commentarii de bello gallico, or just bellicum gallicum. Unlike Caesar, Daron's account actually appears to be more truthful, appears to be more truthful, but we don't have a lot of detail on what's in it. We just know he talks about winning battles. We don't have the details of like, then the right advanced and did this. And we don't, so we can't say whether that's true or not. We, we're missing the detail to scrutinize. So maybe when we get more detail, we'll be like, never mind, it wasn't that truthful. Also, who is it that's saying it appears to be more truthful, these biased maesters or the biased Targaryens? Yeah, well, I'm <laughs> right? saying that because I know Caesar's is pretty dishonest, but Daron's, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that I would go that far because Caesar's is very, I mean, at one point Caesar has a battle where there were, he, he claims there were 400,000 Gauls and he lost zero men. <laughs> fighting him like I don't think Daron goes that far right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm guessing but I haven't read I don't know that he doesn't go that far but I'm guessing he doesn't go that far so further evidence that George was thinking of Caesar's book <laughs> comes it too is used as a textbook <laughs> the conquest of Dorn is yeah. also used as a textbook here we go Dar Davos 5 a storm of swords Davos comes in the room to find Edric Storm and Shireen getting a lesson from Maester Pylos on King Daron's Conquest of Dorne, which they are reading, quote, Princess Shireen and the boys said their farewells courteously. When they had taken their leaves, Maester Pylos moved closer to Davos. My lord, perhaps you would like to try a bit of Conquest of Dorne as well? He slid the slender, leather-bound book across the table. King Daron wrote with an elegant simplicity, and his history is rich with blood, battle, and bravery. Your son is quite engrossed. <laughs> Davos' son is quite engrossed. Remember, Davos' son is, he's like, Daron the first worshipped false gods, but he was a great king otherwise and very brave in battle. Remember, because at this point, Davos become very accepting of Relorism. He's a devout Relorist at this point. And of course, Davos is like, oh, I don't like that part, but he's, he's glad that his son is learning and coming along nicely. And Davos is, uh, it's interesting. He's like, yeah, I guess I should read stuff like this. But he's more about reading letters. He needs to read letters. He thinks that's more important. He thinks what's happening now is more important than what happened in the past, which is interesting, but also true, but also not true. Because <laughs> with the conquest of Dorne is an example of history repeating itself, and it will repeat itself again. Maybe not literally conquering Dorne, although maybe, I don't know. There are history, there are lessons in history that Davos could learn that would be useful for what he's doing now. Same with a lot of the other characters, Stannis, John, Danny, everyone, right? And that's what we're doing. And we're having fun with it. Speaking of history, one of the reasons Daron was named Daron is in this next section called An End to False Darons. And I don't mean the misspelled Darons. One of the bigger reveals in John's A Game of Thrones, meaning book one arc, is 
Maester Aemon telling John what his last name is or was. Here it is, Maester Aemon. Quote, My father was Makar, first of his name, and my brother Aegon reigned after him in my stead. My grandfather named me for Prince Aemon, the Dragonite, who was his uncle or his father, depending on which tale you believe. Aemon, he called me. Targaryen, John says, right, in response. So this is arguably <laughs> the first mention of Daron II, a.k.a. Daron the Good, even though the name Daron isn't stated because his grandfather called him. Grand, that grandfather is Daron II. And of course, Daron II was probably named for Daron I, our, our subject today. So early on, both King Darons come up in A Song of Ice and Fire. Really important. They're both lessons for the future, for the current characters. They are in George's efforts to make history repeat itself, to make history lessons for, uh, for the future. This is one of the characters that is at the center of that concept. King Daron I comes up as much or more than any other king, but in ways that other ones don't. His book, for example, his youthfulness things like that. We also wonder if any of the other Darons were named that way or whether he was named for his mother. Remember, usually often you're named after your father, especially when you're a boy. You usually don't see boys named after their mother, but his mother was Daenera. So that's kind of like... If anyone's seen Ted Lasso, that was a little bit in Ted Lasso's. (laughs) (laughs) So that's not, it's not the same in Daenera, Daron. It's not the same, but it's a little similar. It's in that same conception, same construction. But there was also... Another, there were more Darons around, so let's talk about that. The second mention of Daron in the world of Ice and Fire helps explain what this problem was. Quote, One such incident was the troublesome appearance of several pretenders claiming to be Prince Daron the Daring, the youngest brother of Aegon II, who was killed at Second Tumbleton, but whose body was never identified, leaving the door open for unscrupulous men to make their false claims. So it wasn't in honor of Daron the Daring, rider of the Blue Queen to Serion, but perhaps a pushback against people pretending to be him, or maybe a little of both. Now, it's confusing because the term pretender to the throne doesn't actually mean pretending to be someone else, but it sometimes does. It doesn't always mean that. In this case, it's literally someone pretending to be Daron. So when this Daron was born in 143, Daron the Daring would have been 27 years already by that time had he lived, which he didn't. Uh, So this may have been to put to rest all these, to settle that issue, be like, okay, this is a real Daron Targaryen. He's going to be king, etc. Enough of this nonsense of false Darons. Of course, his father was Aegon III. Daenerys Valerian was his mom. And Daenerys was the daughter of Daron Valerian. So that's another influence there, another Daron. And Daron Valerian was in turn the son of the notable Sir Vaymond, who we will see on House of the Dragon. Last week, I made a small mistake saying the Bravosi ship sunk was the true heart, but it was the Grand Defiance, I meant. It was the true heart that was also sunk in that battle. So both those ships were sank. It doesn't change the point I made at the time. The true heart was an allied ship instead of an enemy. And Daron Valarian was the captain of that ship and he died with it. So that was one of Oakenfist's sub-commanders. Although... Technically, he wasn't Oakenfist until after that battle. That's where he got the nickname. That was him who sank the Grand Defiance, the Alan Valerian Oakenfist, and he would become the most important of King Daron the first commanders during the Conquest of Dorne. Oakenfist would, along with the Dragon Knight, who was his cousin, and surely some veterans of the Dance of the Dragons. Maybe not a whole lot of veterans from the dance. Because by the time the Conquest of Dorne started, it was 157, and the dance ended in 131. So 26 years, eh, even if you were only 20 during the dance and you survived, you're 46 when the, when the 
when the conquest of Dorne breaks out, which means you could still be a, in the military at that point. But you may not be, you're not a, probably not a frontline soldier anymore. You might be more of a commander type by then. There's still some knights would be riding to war at that age, but that's, that's you could be there. quite fit and capable at 46. <laughs> Absolutely, you can. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Sean and I are both 46. It was convenient for Aegon III, Nina writes, that his wife's father was, was both named Daron and was a dead war hero associated with Admiral Oakenfist. So no outside observer would think it was strange to name an eldest child after a grandparent and Daron Valerian's part was he died a hero. So it, it makes sense. You name people after dead heroes who were co- connected to the family. And it's a real family. Valarian connection is a very strong family connection there. Especially going on the mention of the false Darons. There's a lot of reasons to name him Daron. And a lot of reasons why that name stuck after that. Nina mentions there's another s- similar example from history where Henry VIII was named Duke of York when he was only a boy which was a little unusual because usually that's not given to a child. There's, there were pretender Richards, who was the last Duke of York before him. There were fake Richards, false Richards, kind of like false Darons, who were trying to claim the Duchy of York. And so to cut that off, Henry VII just gave it to his, his firstborn when he was only like three. So that it's like, well, no one can claim it now. It belongs to the son of the king. So put a kibosh on that. Maybe a similar sort of inspiration here. Nina writes too, we have no, again, we have no idea of his upbringing, how close he was to his father. Did he have a dragon egg put in his cradle? Did that practice continue at that point? Because Aegon III did not like dragon eggs. He, remember what happened, there was a, one of the last dragons to hatch was this mutated, horrible white thing that bit Alan and Bela's child when it was born in the, in the crib. And then Aegon was like, no more dragon eggs at court. He made Viserys send his dragon egg back to Dragonstone. So I suspect Daron did not have a dragon egg put in his crib because his dad was like, eh, I don't like those. I don't want that hatching and eating my child's arm or his all of him. So I'm going to guess no, which is a change of tradition. They may have gone back to that tradition later. In fact, I think they did, but definitely would guess that it was discontinued temporarily in there. But, and we have no idea how he got along with his siblings. He was, his younger brother was Baylor the future Baylor the Blessed. Talk about yet another just opposite personality. <laughs> the most pacifist king of, of all time by a mile. Follows in the footsteps of perhaps one of the most warmongerish kings of all time. I mean, had Daron lived longer, maybe he would have calmed down. Maybe he would have started up another conquest or kept trying to conquer Dorne since it didn't take. He was probably a talented command. Since he was a talented military commander, you got to figure he paid attention in class and learned about his military history, took to those lessons at least, but, but maybe he was just talented all around. That part remains a mystery for now. Even if you're talented all around, it's still, it's, it's hard to gain wisdom. It's, it, no matter how much intelligence or knowledge you have in your brain, it's hard to be wise without a certain number of years under your belt. That's a good point. And he might not have had the wisdom to understand that even if you can succeed in his military strategy, there's going to be the follow-up of winning the hearts of the people, of maintaining the peace and establishing trade. All these things are sort of interconnected and, and much more difficult to like learn. They're much more intricate and dependent upon people's personalities and uh, evolve over time, where you move this army here, attack this unit, defeat this fleet. is a little bit more finite and learnable, if you will. You know? Great point. And that is very much Daron in a nutshell, because, yeah, when it comes to the battles... He was elite, like Rob apparently was, where he had a 
maybe almost a military prodigy's vision of how tactics and strategy could work and he could see things that traditional strategists would overlook or would not do because it wasn't done. But from his fresh perspective, he could say, well, why don't we do these things? And maybe they should work. And, and they, they tended to work. But you, where you're very, very right is after, <laughs> in terms of ruling yeah. afterwards, of course, of administrating the victory of winning. There's a winning the battle, but then there's turning that into a true victory which he was not capable of doing. And he did made very big mistakes as to who he put in charge afterwards as to what, and those are lessons of history that he didn't take. It's interesting to think too, that if things had gone differently with Rob, he might have had more wisdom. He would have had an advantage on wisdom with Caitlin as an advisor. Yes. She would have had this wisdom he doesn't have. And she would have reminded him of the people that died in the battles. That would have been, I think, part of his leadership going forward was he would have accounted for that. Mm, Yeah, maybe if he had time to learn from his mistakes. Right. If you if you survive his mother there advising him. Yes. Right. Instead of some other general and some other captain and some other warmonger. Very true. Very true. Here's the quote that comes when he becomes king. Since we don't know very much about the time before he was king, we'll fast forward to the year 157. When Aeon III died in the 26th year of his reign, 157 years after the conqueror was crowned, he left behind two sons and three daughters. The eldest of his sons, Darren, was a mere boy of 14 when he assumed the throne. Perhaps because Darren's charm and genius, or perhaps because of his memory of what transpired during the regency of Darren's father, Prince Viserys chose not to insist on a regency while the young king was in his minority. Instead, Viserys continued to serve as hand of the king while Darren ruled ably and capably. Okay, so remember, this Viserys is the Viserys who married Lara Rogari. Now, by this time, Lara has left, but Viserys has his own children, Aegon, the future Aegon the Unworthy, Aemon, the Dragon Knight, and, of course, Princess Nerys. It is both unusual yet completely fitting that they didn't have a regency. For one, this kid immediately went off to war, which kind of argues that maybe he wasn't ready to be king. On the other hand, he convinced everyone of his plans, and they were like, wow, this is a good plan. On the other, other hand, <laughs> he didn't, he's not going to do much else very well. Oh, maybe that's just because he didn't get a chance to. Oh, he, his book, he wrote that while he maybe should have been administering his conquest of Dorne instead of writing about it, right? But... <laughs> Oh, well. So it's, on the other hand as well, though, the regency for Aegon III was a total disaster. It was a bunch of people trying to grab power, especially Unwin Peak, a real piece of work who combines the best virtues, yes, sarcasm is is being laid here, of Tywin and Littlefinger <laughs> combined into one person. <laughs> and no one wanted that to happen again. We're like, yeah, maybe the risk of a 14-year-old king is lesser than the risk of another regency council. So this was more of a damned if you do, damned if you don't maybe situation rather than, ah, let's just let the 14-year-old take over. It's not quite that simple. So it probably would have gone badly either way, but maybe it would have gone less bad had they actually gone with the Regency. And you go back and forth with all those on the other hand, on the other hand. Yeah, there really are (laughs) counterbalancing factors. The the Princess Bride, like, clearly, can I drink from a glass in front of you? (laughs) (laughs) I would guess that Baylor, the future Baylor the Blessed, was one of his siblings that was very much against this conquest of Dorne, but I doubt he had much say. Meanwhile, his sister Dana, the future Dana the Defiant, who very much looked up to him and probably expected to marry him eventually, because that's what happens, right? The Targaryens marry each other. So she was all for it. But we also don't know a whole lot about her either. She's missing 
figure in this time that we would really like to know more about, which Fire and Blood will, will do for us eventually. She was, quote, a fearsome archer with the Dornish bow her brother Daron had brought back from his conquest. So he gave her a, a cool Dornish bow after the first war, and she really liked it. And maybe this, this is one of the smaller signs that she looked up to him. It seems he was thinking about this conquest before he took the throne. Because he did it right away. I mean, the same year he took the throne, this conquest began. That's fast. Because you got to get the troops together. You got to have the planning, the logistics. That's real fast. He was just ready to go. Not that I'm suggesting his father was murdered. There's no evidence of that. And I don't think he's that, I don't think he's that type of person. Maybe other people would have been. He had tuberculosis, to be clear. I, I should have, <laughs> that's an important factor. So the no, very strong reason to believe he wasn't poisoned. I, I don't, it's hard to fake tuberculosis. So he died of that. It, of course, they called it consumption, which same thing. Maybe that was like, okay, my dad's going to die soon. He's probably not going to make it. Let's start planning to conquer Dorne. It, it seems like Alan Valerian Oakenfist was in on it right away. They were planning this. They presented this plan to the council almost immediately. And the council was impressed. They, could, they didn't just draw these plans up overnight. It seems like they've been working on it for a while, talking it through, figuring it out, playing war games. I don't know, like the kind of stuff that like RPG people would be doing, having a good time playing in battles or, or models or whatever, but they're doing it in earnest. They're actually planning a real war. A couple points on this. Yeah. One, I hadn't considered the idea that, I had thought about the idea that knowing his father was going to die, maybe he was planning to step into those footsteps with some momentum. Yeah. You know? But it didn't occur to me that maybe... Other leaders in a realm were also considering the implications of the king dying. Maybe they were mobilizing an army and getting logistical stuff ready for a rebellion. If they the were king worried dies, about it, yeah. And since because that young, was already set, oh, yeah, that's part of yeah, it. Yeah, but since that was already set, since troops were ready and forces were mobilized, logistics were on hand. They're like, hey, this is the moment to strike. Let's let's. Mm. There's not a rebellion. This might even keep there from being a rebellion, right? If we get all the troops that might have rebelled in an army that goes to Dorne with a common foe, like I, I could see a lot of other angles that might have come into play here. Also like worth noting, yeah. yeah, thank you. Real war militaries have all sorts of contingency plans for different battles that might go down. Yeah. They're, they're constantly ready and training for and playing out different scenarios that what happens if this spot gets invaded or if this leader gets overthrown, et cetera, et cetera. There's a, at least modern... Yeah sophisticated armies like America or it's a real, China or whatever else. real weakness of the feudal system was it didn't, that was not the case. And not, and not only the feudal system, but when you rely on levies, only the, the knights, the household guard, those kind of people, are only they are ready. And Westeros didn't usually have standing armies in any era. But yeah, that's, uh, they're expensive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're yeah. very expensive. Especially now in the era of dragons. They really didn't need them in the era of dragons where you could just be like, hey, yeah, we can get an army together, but this is sufficient to keep you keep the peace for now. That was something that I guess Alfred the Great realized. And there would be different scenarios in different spots and moments in history. But he realized the cost of maintaining a standing army was not as great as the loss of Viking invasion. Yes. So, very true. okay, I guess we need a standing army. That was, that was a, a key moment in history. Yeah. And, and, and portrayed on the show The Last Kingdom as well as, as very well the books, which we have a link. You can get them on our website. <laughs> I'm a big fan. Did books they portray and Alfred wanting a standing army in the show? I think he, like I don't he think was it was. In it, but I didn't think like that was a plot line. I'm not sure they emphasize that, but I think they oh. sorted it because I think Uhtred was part of like, 
that force that was supposed to be ready. Definitely there was his, the Hoos Carls, what they were called, the badass, ultra ready at all times warrior class that he had. I don't think they were, I, I, yeah, they weren't, it wasn't super emphasized on the show. I okay. Think. Right. Yeah, I don't know if it was a plot line, but I do seem to remember it was like a decision he made at some point, yeah. some sort of council meeting. It might have been just like one line of dialogue in one scene, yeah. but historically it was it was a huge deal, a big plot. Yeah, line. and he fortified yeah. <laughs> like, and he also like militarized the borders too, and had forts like mm-hmm. defense this fort system. Which, um, yeah, like this is the kind of thing maybe Daron would have done had he had time to administer his conquest, but he again was more concerned with writing about it <laughs> at first. <laughs> so. Speaking of Oakenfist, getting back to him and the idea that Oakenfist was helping Daron plan for this, if not encouraging it, maybe Oakenfist gave him the idea. Who knows? I mean, the idea came from somewhere. It may have been Daron's own, but the seed may have germinated with someone else. Nina suggests the possibility, and I really like this idea that Daron may have really looked up to Oakenfist. Oakenfist was battle tested, technically a family member, he was a cousin, and had lived in that era that maybe a lot of the young warrior types of Daron's era would have maybe looked on as as glory days, like that they missed out on the dance of the dragons, that epic civil war. Of course, people who lived there were like, no, it was awful. But the youth glorifying the wars they missed out on is nothing new. It's a curse of the youth. They're like, yeah, we wanted to be a part of that. No, you didn't. <laughs> no, you did not. So they're like, let's make our own wars. No, no, you... See, that's exactly what... This is probably the biggest piece of wisdom that when Sean was referring to, it's hard to learn wisdom in schools. This is probably the most important piece of wisdom that could have been imparted to a person like this, but was not. In fact, the opposite was likely imparted to him, that it was a good thing, that his he was probably encouraged by many, if not most, to think and act like this. Not to think of the horrors of that war, but to think of the glories and all that other stuff. And Alan may have been like a living relic of that age. He was the brother of a super loyal young dragon rider, Adam, his own. He tried to tame a dragon of his own and got burned for it, survived it. So he still has burn scars that he could show and like this evidence of his participation in that like evidence of dragons that isn't around anymore. Like, yeah, this guy is a real living legend. I mean, he was super successful, did so many things, was a, I mean, he was a rock star with his, don't forget the elephant line. I mean, this guy was really, really famous. What are you supposed to do? Nina writes a really good line here. When you're a talented military genius, or you used to think you are, (laughs) what are you supposed to do when you're really good at war when there's no war, but you're the king? Well, you start one. If you're not the king, you you have limited options, but if you are, hmm. That might be what you end up doing, but it's not what you're supposed to do. Yes, you're not. (laughs) And the rest of the administration was going pretty well because Viserys, Prince Viserys, future King Viserys, uncle, Uncle Prince Viserys was highly competent. He was a lot like Tywin without the ruthlessness and ambition. He just had that sort of competence for administration. George may also be well thinking about some other real world parallels here. Charles the 12th of Sweden was king when he was 14, avoided a regency somehow despite being so young, and then insisted on being crowned by the church and then rode out to battle (laughs) and died in battle maybe was murdered in battle to make it look like a battle injury, but that's a story for another time. Like we said, it's possible some of the, even the people who were wary of him starting a war preferred that to someone like another Unwin Peak coming along to rule from behind the throne. It was definitely a, like you said, Sean, for the cost of Viking raids, the standing army was cheaper than it's suffering Viking raids. A similar thing here. It's like, yep, 
the cost of raising armies and going starting a war is cheaper than another on Winpeka charge. <laughs> mm-hmm. Rocking a hard place. Especially if you totally discount the Dornish casualties. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which, of course, they would, those jerks. Yeah. <laughs> we wonder quite a bit what the realm felt about House Targaryen at this time, too. Like, we, we wonder what Targaryens thought of themselves now that they didn't have dragons, now that they had endured this civil war. What did the realm think of them after all this? Did they think with the loss of dragons... Did they think the Targaryens are weak now or was it just, well, they're weaker, but they're still on top? What was the view of them? We don't really know, but it may enter into Daron's thinking, maybe why he wanted to show strength. Did it put pressure on him to marry, which he never did? Of course, he was only 14. And like we said, there was lots of other Targaryens. There wasn't a lot of pressure for him to marry from a child perspective, having children. But politically speaking, Eh, that's the rub, right? Without dragons, remember the primary reason for incest marriages ostensibly was dragon riding. Did that thinking change when there was no dragon riding to do? Did they care? Arguably, marrying into great houses became more important because they had no dragons and needed to back up their the throne with another ally that could provide wealth and swords. But Nina points out, yeah, that's true. But at the same time, they might want to just really emphasize that they're the Targaryens. Like, yes, we're still different. We're still exceptional. Our look helps distinguish us, helps tie us to the old blood. Stability is important. People care about kings maintaining. Lannisters have held power for a long time. The Dornish, you know, the Martells have held power for hundreds of years. A lot. Westeros likes stability. Were they trying to just keep that going? Or did they need to kick things up to to show that they still had it? Tightrope walk, because you can really see both of these things. You can really see why both of those things would matter. But which mattered more? That's the kind of detail we don't have. And whether they were reading the situation correctly is another matter. Maybe they, maybe they correctly assessed the dangers of their current scenario and acted in a way that made it worse. We don't know. One thing they did still have, very important to note, in line with Alan Oakenfist, they had House Valarian, which was weaker than it had been during the dance, but still very powerful. They no longer had dragons, but they still had a huge fleet. Their wealth had diminished, but it was still a very rich and powerful house. Talk about displaying power. You'd want to have him around. <laughs> All right. Our next section is called Dreams of Conquest. Let's have a nice, lengthy, awesome quote. This is how he presented himself. Few foresaw that Daron, the first of his name, would cover himself in glory, as did his ancestor, Aegon the Conqueror, whose crown he wore. His father had preferred a simple circlet. Yet that glory turned to ashes almost as swiftly. A youth of rare brilliance and forcefulness, Daron at first met resistance from his uncle, his counselors, and many great lords when he first proposed to, quote, complete the conquest by bringing Dorne into the realm at last. His lords reminded him that, unlike the Conqueror and his sisters, he had no more dragons fit for war. To this, Daron famously responded, You have a dragon? He stands before you. In the end, the king could not be gainsaid, and when he revealed his plans, plans formulated, it is said, with the help and advice of Alan Valarian, the Oakenfist, some began to think it could indeed be done, for the proposed campaign improved upon that of Aegon's own. So intellectually, the way it was presented, they were they were impressed. They were like, wow, because first they seemed like, nah, 
Dorn is so hard to attack. Look at all the previous attempts. It all failed. What makes you think you could do it any better? And then he showed them and they were like, oh, okay. Well, actually, maybe you can. And this is another reason why maybe he was called the young dragon in his day because he called himself a dragon. He's like, you have a dragon. He stands before you. He's like, I'm the dragon. So that's why I lean towards, yes, they called him that <laughs> during his time. <laughs> yeah. I assume from that, they probably called him the dragon. Yeah. I'm just unsure about the young part. Okay. It makes sense. He was young. I can yeah, easily 14. see it. But I was just curious. It's not an insult. He is young. Right. right. No, in some yeah. way, it makes him more impressive. They're like, they're more impressed by him by referring to his youth. Maybe it was a slight, though. Like, yeah. He's a dragon, but he's inexperienced. He's not wise. <laughs> so he screwed it up. He conquered well, but he was too young to manage well. After the fact, it does seem less like a compliment. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. this youthfulness, his youthful inexperience definitely cost him. And, da- and he took the crown of Aegon. He took the conqueror's crown and wore that, which most of the kings after Aegon did not wear it. Aenys had this big, gaudy, golden crown made. Magor didn't have Aegon's crown because it was taken, if I remember correctly. Aemond wore Aegon's crown for a little while, not because he's not to be king, just to mark himself as I'm cool. Uh, (laughs) So it wasn't worn often, but it it definitely, so it definitely suggested a lot. You generally put it on if you're like a warrior, warlike Targaryen, as we're looking at the patterns. So Magor did wear it for sometimes, but I think he had had it stolen from him. But he was definitely warlike. So anyway, so they, they were sold on the idea. And... Should they have been? Well, given the end result, no, they shouldn't. <laughs> I, think, I think it pretty clearly the answer is no. They, they, were, they were sold a, a bill of goods that they should not have purchased. But it tells you something about how convincing and energetic and just, it says rare forcefulness. So he also probably, he may have probably didn't threaten his counselors, but maybe just, you don't want to get on my bad side, that kind of thing. Like, this is happening. Do you want to be against me or with me? That kind of, I don't know. Just some sort of negotiating from strength, <laughs> like I don't forget who's the king, that kind of thing. You can also imagine there might have been characters behind him, like Littlefinger or Varys or whatever, yeah. that might have manipulated things to go like it would. And those characters wouldn't have made it into the history books necessarily either. Yeah, and Oakenfist might be that type of character. I mean, I'm not saying he's yeah, super cunning, too. sneaky guy, but he was he was smart. And if he wanted to go for Doran, if he had his reasons, which we'll get to what those might have been, especially if Daron idolized him, then he would really listen to him. And even if he was maybe more honorable... On some level, Ned and Littlefinger were working together at first, at least. Yeah. And Oakenfist wasn't trying to screw Daron over. That's for sure. Like, unlike Littlefinger, who was definitely trying to screw Ned over. Yeah. And Oakenfist was somewhat right because the naval aspect to this campaign was crucial and decisive. And presumably that was Oakenfist's call or his realization how decisive it would be. And it was something that Aegon did not do. And that was part of the improving on his plan aspect. So that's really important. But Oakenfist apparently also had no great ideas about what to do after the battle was won, after the battles were won. He was also not yeah. some skilled administrator, apparently, or couldn't be bothered to... We're not sure, really. But It's interesting to think that maybe it wasn't incorrect for them to accept this battle plan in this war, but that they should have required an amendment for how to manage it after the <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so we wonder, again, returning to the issue of what justified this attack when they had promised not to. I mean, sure, they could just ignore their promise. It wasn't his promise. It was, it was his great, 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 whatever, how many greats, grandfather that made that promise. Not him. And Nina says, also, there maybe they could get away with it because the Martells hadn't exactly been the most faithful friends either. 
I mean, there were vulture kings that were probably supported by the Martells indirectly who invaded the realm. The Martells were like, we didn't have anything to do with that. They probably did have a little something to do with that, if not a lot to do with that. There was also Morian Martell, who, remember, we called him Prince Moron, the one who loudly announced his plans to invade the Stormlands, and then Vermithor just came in and just torched them all, and... Or was it Vermithor? One of the dragons came in and torched them when they were trying to land in the Stormlands and um, went very poorly. So that he clearly, you could argue that the peace was already broken. Like, well, one of you guys attacked us, so that is invalid. So maybe there were just enough things they could point to to say, look, that you guys broke that deal long ago. Like, Aleandra Martell as well called herself the new Nymeria. Remember, she's the one who married Drazenko Rogare, as we mentioned last week. And she was allowing knights and lords to win her favor by daring bold raids into the marches. So that is not upholding the peace. So they, I think they had a pretty strong argument that the Dorn wasn't holding up its end of, of this agreement either. So maybe this isn't as egregious as when we first introduced it. Maybe it's not so bad. Either way, it's, it's something we're going to want to get more on. Maybe the death of the dragons was tied to this more than we thought. Maybe Dorn started to get a little more uppity started to push the borders a bit more because, hey, there's no more dragons. That was the one thing that really was messing us up. We're not worried about them bringing armies into our territory. Maybe, maybe they should have been, because Daron did that. But at the time, leading armies into Dorne had pretty much been a universal failure every time it had been tried, sooner or later. Meanwhile, if we get a little tinfoily, I can entertain the idea that Daron knew, assuming this idea even existed in the first place, that Daron knew about the idea that the dragons... We're supposed to save the world, or the House Targaryen was supposed to save the world. Well, they would have been like, well, that was clearly wrong. There's no dragons. <laughs> so they may have been like, well, that prophecy was wrong. Or they may have been like, well, to truly fulfill the prophecy, we really have to have the whole continent conquered. Either of those are possible. I um, have a feeling, I, I feel like he didn't know and that it was lost at that point. Yeah. Just saying, like, I think after, it seems that it, we're going to see it get lost in the Dance of the Dragons during House of the Dragon, that knowledge. I, I would guess you're probably right about that. Like, w again, the book Signs and Portents is maybe one of our best clues or what we should be honing in on. And that book would probably contain all this information. And that book was lost at some point. Maybe a lot happened to Dragonstone in fighting. Yeah. And, and stuff getting stolen. That's the type of time when relics and valuable stuff disappears and the chaos and tumult of two sides fighting it out in the halls and, and changing over who's in charge and all that. Yep, things do get stolen when leaders switch out, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> hmm, real world parallels, <laughs> don't we have? Interesting. <laughs> hmm, yes, what could I be talking about? Again, I wanna, I'm curious, was the plan of attack so good that Darren was like, we got to do this? Or was he just so confident going in any plan? He was going to be like, yes, this is going to work because he was just so eager and ready. Maybe a little both. Like the plan did work. This, the, as bad as the aftermath was handled, the conquest itself doesn't seem to be an exact. I mean, they did it. They conquered. Like that's not an exaggeration. It worked. As, he, may have, he may have undersold how many men he lost. He may have exaggerated how many men they defeated, but he still did something that no one else had done before. So it is impressive that's not exaggerated, that they definitely took conquered Dorn, even though it didn't hold. No one had even done that much before. Just a, a quick thought. It occurs to me, even if it, Aegon or whoever in the past had conquered Dorn, they might have lost it too. Yeah. Who's to say they would have been able to hold You're on? You're right. To I mean, the Dornish do not like being ruled from the outside until they were brought in by marriage, until it was like, hey, we're friends, until it was like more of a alliance of equals. That worked. It was also, given all this... It was another lesson is maybe we should be one realm. If, if, if another Daron's going to come by eventually, then 
maybe we should just marry y'all and, and prevent this from happening, especially since it's a way to vault right to the top. We're marrying the kings and queens. That should give them good footing to have some stability and power and not get screwed out of the arrangement. So in a span of a year, he had gotten all the armies together and started the conquest. Within another year, it was done. Only one year. That's really fast. That's really, impre- that's really impressive. And this is, this is important to emphasize because this is why people remember him so greatly. He constantly impressed them with things that hadn't been done before. Even though, yeah, there are things that shouldn't have been done, they're impressive. Like I look at someone who walks a tightrope over the Grand Canyon. Should you have done that? I don't know. Was that really necessary? But it, whether you should have or not, it was damn impressive. <laughs> it's like, I'm, it's, it's like, should you have? But it's also, wow. The ability, the courage, the actually doing it in the moment. There's one thing practicing for when you have like the nets and all that, and you actually do it like, wow. I don't know why that of all things was the example I chose to use, but it argues that his impressive character is part of what got him so many, got such buy-in from the other great lords. And Oakenfist on the personal level. This is really important. There's a lot of room for drama, for conspiracy, for personal relationships having a big time effect on global politics. Oakenfist, let's remember, not long after the Dance of the Dragons, he was sent by Unwin Peak to deal with the Red Kraken. He had to sail his fleet all the way around the steps, all the way through the Stepstones, around Dorne, which is really dangerous, and then up to fight an ironborn ruler in his home turf at sea. Yeah, that sounds like an easy job, doesn't it? We talked about that in our Stepstones episode, how he had to get through the Stepstones and talk to Oakenfit or talk to Rakalio Rendoon and do all this weird stuff there. Then he goes to Dorne and hooks up with Aleandra Martell, literally hooks up with her. There's rumors they had a child. Probably didn't happen, but maybe. And she, again, was a warlike, ambitious princess who called herself the New Nymeria and then later married Drazenko Regare, who, again, came up last week in the Lysine episode. It was Drazenko who approached Alan in the first place to inform him, hey, y'all, hey, yo, we've got Prince Viserys. We'll ransom him back to you. So Aleander may have had children with Drazenko before he was murdered. We're not sure if they had kids or not. So either she or one of those children, her descendants with Drazenko, would have been in charge of Dorne when this conquest of Dorne hap- uh, started. So he put that all together. Oakenfist helps Daron plan this invasion of Dorne. He has personal connection to the ruler or her children. That's super interesting. So their personal relationship may absolutely play a role here. It may play a big role. He may have been mad at her. He may have felt jilted. I, I'm not saying that's definitely the case. He may not have cared at all. They may have just had a little fling and that'd be the end of it and no hard feelings. But if he did have hard feelings, this could be like, this is how we get those Dornish back or something like that. So strong possibility of personal connections here. If he had like made some promise, I'll be back or I'll prove myself or yes. I'll show you some kind of thing like that. Or Chip if on he chose some other guy over him, he wanted to beat that guy. Also sailing around Dorne might have given him the insight of like, I could take that harbor mm, or whatever. Yeah, you know. he's got to see it up hand, uh, first. Uh, yeah, yeah. Mm, good point. He saw it. Might have got insights into the state of their Navy or mm. their defenses or whatever from just conversations with her or other people around her. Yeah. The political and global considerations are pretty huge too, though. As much as the personal connections might matter, during the era of the Rogares, remember Dorne claimed the Stepstones for a while which put them in a great position of power that the Iron Throne would not have been pleased with. So they might have been, we can't have that happen again. We need to just take Dorne and then 
There won't be six different powers in the world that can cut us off from the Stepstones. Dorn, Tyrosh, Lys, random pirates here and there, Bravos. Now, uh, take one of those big players off the board and make them an ally instead. It gives them a lot more control over what's going on in the Stepstones. Indeed. All right. Here's our sort of halfway point. Let's take a few questions and a few other things, and then we'll get back to it. Do we know the name of the Dornish prince who submitted to Darren the first? Question from Sean Pink. Who is that? <laughs> That's a really good question. <laughs> we actually don't, but he was the father of Maron Martell, the Maron who married Daenerys, the Maron who built the water gardens. So that guy's dad is the one who bent the knee to Daron. And he also is the same guy that bent the knee peacefully to Daron the second as part of the marriage. So he bent the knee twice to Daron's. He bent two bent the knee to two different Daron's. So he's been charged for a long time and part of two big moments. And still, we don't have a name, huh? Yeah. Well, <laughs> Not the only Dornish leader whose name we're lacking. Yeah, I was going to yeah, say, I was yeah. like, don't get me started on Dornish leaders that we should know. We have a lot of the unnamed princess of Dorn and the unnamed prince of Dorn. Yeah, at least it's a dude this time. Yeah, at least it's a dude. <laughs> I can say it's just it's just personal to the Dornish, not to women. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Actually, I think I goofed. I think Maron bent the knee to, to Daron the second. Yeah, Maron bent the knee to Daron the second. This, okay. this guy, unnamed guy, bent the knee to Daron the first. But he also arranged the marriage of his daughter, Mariah, to Daron the second. He did do that. So he did do two other, did do two, at least two major things. And that's Mariah is mother of Baylor Breakspear. So Daron the second and Mariah are mother of... Baylor and Carr and, and that group. So that's important. And the House of the Dragons mush, or not House of the Dragons, but Westeros.org's game, they had a role-playing game going, which is, takes place in this era. So they had to give this guy a name. They, get, they called him Merentz just because they needed to give him a name. They may, and, and George might go with that because George occasionally has used their fill-in names in spots like this because they, they had to give someone a name. There's at least two, other, two or three other examples, but there's also examples where the, he gave a name and they had to retroactively change um, theirs. On the subject of, of uh, you were saying Mariah Martell. Yeah. I'm going to posit that I feel that it should be Miriam Martell for two reasons. One, it used to be Mariah, it used to be spelled M-A-R-I-A and it got changed to Y. And I think that's to make it be more in line with the Nymeria root. Mm. Like I think that just like if we have Maria Martell. I, I, anyways. Ah, Maria, Maria. I think, I think, I think Maria is meant to be a little bit closer to Nymeria's name than Mariah. Okay, maybe Myria. Yeah, Myria. Yeah, I think, I, anyways, that just randomly. Anyway, I, yeah, I, you're I, probably right. It, you're, you're, Nymeria is probably what they're going for. Yeah, probably going for that, like and that. that's why he changed it from Mariah with the A to the Y to make it a little bit closer, because it, like it did that. change. Yeah, I think that's um, true, yeah. Question from last week that relates to this one. We've already, in fact, touched on this topic briefly. This is from Kat Ovivas. When you're talking about Danis the Dreamer and her book, Signs and Portents, it gave her an idea regarding the letter that we referred to, the one that was presented to Aegon the Conqueror by Prince Nymor, the one that made him abandon the conquest of Dorne. He, remember, flew back to Dragonstone for a bit and then came back and said, okay, yes, I accept. We're not going to fight you anymore. Her thought is, now she includes a possible bunch of different theories here, but I just want to narrow it down and just, or, or actually broaden it and just say, what if signs and portents is what he went and checked? He went and looked at the book to refer to certain things that were said to him to see if they lined up, to see 
okay, maybe we don't need Dorn. Maybe we just need, <laughs> maybe I'm taking this too literally. Who knows? There's a lot of possibilities here. I don't want to get zoom in too much on something we have no idea about. But I like the idea that Cato Vivas has planted here that that's what he was doing. Maybe not even signs and portents, but ancient texts, some old book, a glass candle. I don't know. I don't know if they had, I don't know that they had glass candles there, but it wouldn't be surprising if they did. Something that was on Dragonstone because it's weird that he would go there. Like, why not just lock himself in his chair? If he just wants some time to think and be alone, he's the king. No one's going to bother him if he says, don't bother me. <laughs> <laughs> so it yeah. really argues that he, there's something he wanted to refer to, reference, see, interact with back on Dragonstone. And Signs and Portents is a great guess as a possibility. Cadovivas also says, in this case, the fulfillment of the prophecy could be something we are still g- waiting to see. It may refer to Daenerys and like that. I'm so looking forward to all this. Me too, Catovivus. Me too. Also important to note that Alexander the Great was an inspiration for the young dragon. And George has said that straight out. And so if we our main three examples for historical parallels are him, Henry V of England, which we mentioned earlier, and Charles XII of Sweden, who we mentioned earlier. Charles XII was the Swedish young king who died in battle that may have been a murder. Alexander the Great, I'm a huge fan of Alexander the Great. I was like obsessed with him in my 20s. And one day I'll have to do some more work paralleling him, his influence on characters in Song of Ice and Fire, perhaps. I would have fun with that. And I would hope you would too. Guilty Undertaker says, were there any wars early in Aegon IV's reign? If so, he probably wielded it, meaning Blackfire. When were the Wildfire Dragons? Well, the thing is, Aegon IV just ordered people to do stuff. He didn't really participate himself. Were there wars early in Aegon IV's reign? I don't think so. I can't recall any. There may have been some wars with the outside of Westeros where they were fighting, sending navies to fight with some of the free cities, but I definitely nothing that Aegon IV would have personally fought in himself. He was already getting overweight and yeah, he just wasn't going to go any battle into battles. So yes, the wildfire dragons were later in his reign. They were in the, I think in the mid 170s, if I recall correctly, don't quote me on that. It's not super important. It was a big deal when he did it because his his son's wife was Dornish. And he just, this is an unprovoked attack against Dorn when his daughter-in-law is Dornish, the princess of Dorn, former princess of Dorn, or daughter to the princess of Dorn, or the prince of Dorn. And his wildfire dragons were a huge disaster, but he didn't lead that army either. He just ordered them to go and it was a huge failure. And then he just tried to pretend it didn't happen, I guess. <laughs> Guilty Undertaker says, Daron went off to war while Viserys remained safely in King's Landing. Just saying, good point. Maybe... Viserys was happy to have the young king go out on campaigns so he could just administer things in peace without this kid around causing problems. And I mean, like, and if he had any, <laughs> any sort of ambition, he's like, oh, well, if he dies, it's only good for me. That's true. Would, well, then it would pass to Baylor, which I would be, be weird, but... It would be closer to him to him being yeah. in this world. I mean, I don't know that he was that ambition. He would have been next after him, yeah. But, but like... It is speculated that Viserys killed poisoned Baylor, but not right away. Baylor ruled for 10 years. This is like, this. Kid, we got to get rid of this guy. He is a disaster. But that's just very vague speculation. There isn't much to sink your teeth into as far as evidence. It's just the kind of thing he might have done because of the scenario. We're not really sure. And Dornish Dame says, when Darren became king, he was around the same age Alan Oakenfist was at the start of the dance. Very true. Darren would have also have presumably grown up hearing of Benjicott Blackwood's exploit in the dance. Also very true. Yeah, there were some very young capable, not just warriors, but leaders. Benjikot Blackwood became the leader of House Blackwood's forces despite being under 16. And Oakenfist as well was 16-ish 
even younger, maybe when the dance broke out, he was trying to fly a dragon, leading ships, fighting battles. Yeah, all these guys. So yeah, Daron would have looked to characters like that for what he wanted to be like. He wanted to show he was capable of them or more so. All right, back to it. The actual war itself. Like I said, we don't have a lot of details on what happened during the battles. We just have these sort of overviews. But let's work with what we have. Quote. I mean, there's a whole book about it, but I just haven't read that book yet. (laughs) (laughs) Daron I amply proved his prowess on the field of Dorne, which for hundreds of years had defied the Reach, the Stormlands, and even the dragons of House Targaryen. Daron divided his hosts into three forces, one led by Lord Tyrell, who came down the Prince's Pass at the western end of the Red Mountains of Dorne, one led by the king's cousin and master of ships, Alan Valerian, traveling by sea, and one led by the king himself, marching down the treacherous pass called the Bone Way, where he made use of goat tracks that others considered too treacherous to go around the Dornish watchtowers and avoid the same traps that had caught Boris Baratheon. The young king then swept away every force that sought to stop him. The prince's pass was won, and most importantly, the royal fleet broke the planky town and then was able to drive upriver. All right, let's pull up the map. If you are watching the video, you can see it on screen. If you're listening on Spotify, flip the video on and you can see it just for a minute and then you can flip it back to podcast only mode or just take a look at the map later at your convenience. First of all, what Oakenfist did, the Planky Town is right there at the mouth of the Greenblood, which flows out near Sunspear there. So basically by sailing his fleet upriver there, he split Dorne in half. What would be a method of moving ships and soldiers and supplies and bringing them all together into one army for the Dornish would be their main advantage then became an advantage for House Targaryen, for the invaders, because this like main central waterway in Dorne became conquered. It was very much a divide and conquer strategy, which Julius Caesar did. He attacked the different tribes individually, did things to keep them from allying using politics and intrigue, but also just getting there first, attacking them before they could link up, doing things to delay their linkings so that he could destroy them piecemeal. I came, I saw, I conquered. That was Julius Caesar's famous line. Daron could have said the same thing, given how quickly he did it. And well, in Caesar's case, that conquest stuck, most of it, not the, not the England part. Uh, That's one of the things he maybe glossed over (laughs) as one of his failures. But they kept Gaul, although it took decades longer, actually about 100 years, if I remember correctly, for it to be fully settled and where there were no more rebellions. So it's hard to conquer a place. And it it was not even in Caesar's lifetime was that fully acclimated. Can you look at the map? You get the two main passes. You get the Boneway and the Prince's Pass. The three ways into Dorne are thus by sea and through those two passes. Armies... It's just, It's been said dozens of times that many armies have died in those passes. It's too hot. It's too sandy. It's easy to ambush. They don't know where they're going. You can get led astray by guides. You can get lost even with a guide. You can, it's hell. So N- numbers don't matter as much when you're going through a narrow pass either. You could have 500 people, but if only the front 10 can fight, then 30 people might beat you, chance against you at least. And you if know? you have too many people, it's all the more reason to have supplies too. So you want to have an army that's the right size, too, not too big, not too small. But what is not too big, what, not too small? That's, that's, that's the question, isn't it? Daron himself led his army through the Boneway, past some of the most dangerous Dornish houses, ones that, that's 
or as Baratheon is referred to here, he had his hand chopped off after he was captured by the will of will, if you recall. One of the princeps of war is if you can choose the field of battle, you're doing great. Dorne's home field advantage, they're, they're basically always choosing the field of battle because they're used to this desert mountain warfare. Daron just said, no, we're just going to bypass your best advantage here, sneak around using goat tracks. We're not going to confront you in the spot where you have the most advantage. We're going to get past that and then fight you in the open spaces where your advantage is limited, fight you in the area where our armies have river support now, where they can be supplied from the water, whereas before, what are we going to do? Keep bringing supplies down through this perilous passes? No, of course not. They would just cut that off. Once you move out of there, try to bring supplies through, they're going to know. And they're going to attack those supply trains. You can't, if, you, if it's hard to bring an army through, it's going to be even harder <laughs> to bring a supply train through that has, it's much more vulnerable. These aren't fighting men or has fewer fighting men. Low ratio of yeah. fighting soldiers. Much more vulnerable. And et cetera, yeah. yeah. So rather than face them on what was provably unwinnable ground, they shifted the field of battle to other places. Daron seemed to be of a mind that the war would be fought on his own terms, even in their lands, even without dragons. And this is interesting because it's almost like not having dragons made them come up with new strategies. They didn't rely on the dragons and it made them rely more on their ground troops, which how many times have we said in this, Sean, you can't conquer a place with air force only. You have to bring in the ground troops. And, yeah. and they definitely over relied on the dragons in the original conquest because... Well, for one thing, it was too hard to bring troops into Dorne. Daron found a way to pass that problem. Or maybe Alan Oakenfist did. I wonder if that's another reason for the invasion at this moment. I mean, of course, you know, Daron had to have some sort of motivation or have been convinced or be able to convince other people. But it could have been new intelligence that they had about another route, another way to get through. Yeah. Someone like, it might be that Targaryen leaders, military councilmen or whatever, have been searching for some alternate way to get through there. And they finally found it. Like we realized we can go through these goat tracks and get this number of troops this amount of time. If that coincided with Daron becoming a new king or Oakenfist wanted to push for this move, some new piece of intelligence might have put it over the top. Yeah, right on. Another thing that some Littlefinger type character might've contributed to, you know, the never would have made history books or yeah. hasn't yet made history books. <laughs> Bribe some locals to find these tracks or whatever, but actually make sure yeah. they're legit. You know, because that's the thing we've talked about. We've had guides that lead armies to places on purpose to screw them over. <laughs> you wouldn't just trust yeah. any random Dornishman given that history. So yeah, you'd want to you'd do your due diligence on that, but that might indeed be how they, how they found these routes. As for what Daron looked like, well, he was... In battle, he wore elaborate black and gold plate mail, of course, covered with dragon insignias, surely. And he fought with Blackfire, so he would have been a quite a stirring sight to see surrounded by his all-white Kingsguard, because he fought from the front. That's Let's be clear about that. He wasn't a command-from-the-rear type of kid. He was right there in the front. Of course, safer than most front-leading commanders, given the King's Guard around him, and given that one was Aemon the Dragon Knight, who was arguably one of the best fighters in Westeros of all time. So this is also important, not just to evade fighting in territory that is severely to the enemy's advantage. It keeps them hidden. They're like, well, where did they go? Like, we're, we're used to, as the Dornish, 
when people invade their territory, they used to be able to keep track of them because their the other side has no idea where they're going. The Dornish know the terrain so well, like, oh, they're heading this way. That means they're going to go there and then there. And they're like, oh, wait, they didn't go that way. Where are they? And they find themselves in the unusual situation of an invading army they expect to be a little bit lost, actually outmaneuvering them, which is like, whoa, that was a huge surprise. Might have backfooted them a bit and made have scared them a little bit. We're like, well, okay, this is not going how we expected. They, they, they may have been cocky, like, ah, oh, those fools are sending armies into, ah, this will be easy. We'll mop these guys up. And the next thing you know, they've gotten around them. They're like behind us now. Like, oh, how did they do that? What? Well, at some point, they may have started to get truly concerned. Like, this is, this is a well-led army. They, they probably like, they're cocky, like, ah, oh, some 14-year-olds leading the army. This will be easy. Yeah. Mm. At one point, they had to wake up and realize they were in real danger. Yeah, sometimes you just get complacent, too. Even when you have all the advantages and you assume you won't be attacked, you're not prepared for an attack. That was part of Joan of Arc's success, right? Yeah, she would like, that's she true. would attack places that were better fortified or manned, but they just, but she just had this like a destiny of God determination. And so they would show up at a, a, a fort with 300 soldiers and they had 70 soldiers. And she just said, well, let's just attack anyway. <laughs> and it worked because the 300 soldiers, like there's no way they're going to attack us. So they weren't prepared for an attack. And they did attack him and won. <laughs> and it worked several times in a row until, like you said, eventually like, okay, I guess we need to get ready for Joan of Arc. You yeah, know? <laughs> they kept just underestimating her over and over. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was true. That was a recurring feature of, of that. And <laughs> the Dornish may not have underestimated Daron as much as the French, underestim- French and English underestimated Joan of Arc, but there was definitely some underestimating going on here. Now, this was the bone way that he snuck them through, the most dangerous of the route. So he also took on the most dangerous of the three jobs himself. Lord Tyrell came down the Prince's Pass, which is still nasty, but not as nasty. Let's talk about this Lord Tyrell for a second. This Tyrell is in the same class as a Daron would be in that he wasn't part of the dance and may have wanted to be. His house sat out the dance. You're going to maybe notice, a lot of y'all know this already, the house Tyrell is pretty absent from the Dance of the Dragons. That's because... The Lord of Highgarden was a boy. He was an infant. His mother and their Regency Council were like, yeah, we're, we back the Greens. But then they didn't send any military out. And then when things started to go bad for the Greens, they were like, we're just going to continue to do nothing. Yeah, we'll just stay here. Then after the war, the Hightowers almost started ticking it up again. And that's when the Tyrells were like, all right, you're our bannerman, Hightowers. Stop it. If you go to war again, we're executing your... Son, they had one of the, they had a page there. They had like a, one of them was a page to the Lord of Highgarden. So they had him as a, effectively as a hostage. And so that threat worked. So that was like, okay, that could, the dance might've come back up again, if not for that. So this, this is the same infant Lord, 26 years later, Lionel Tyrell. And he was also a high energy, aggressive guy, probably got along with Daron, probably why Daron appointed him to, to be leader of this army. And <laughs> a lot of mistakes are going to be made. Not Again, not during the war, but after Lionel Tyrell. You maybe have forgotten who Lionel Tyrell is, but you're going to be reminded in a minute <laughs> of what happened to you this You know who guy. Lionel Tyrell is on the Dorne map. Yeah, we know who he is. He's not visible on the screen right That's now, right. but it is Brendan Beefish. Jeff Hartline yeah. is Lionel Tyrell. Yeah. <laughs> Does that ring a bell? There might have been some motivation for the Tyrells to... I don't know, recommit to to prove themselves. Like, no, no, we're really loyal. We'll head first into this battle. Good point. In case case it wasn't clear after that whole dance scenario, let us assert ourselves. Maybe they needed to reassert their power given how 
they hadn't done anything. And yeah, they had a lot yeah. of unspent power, you could argue, too. Like, they, they were as less oh, yeah, that's very true. used yeah. by the war. Although, I mean, a, a whole generation had passed, so they presumably would have recovered a lot anyway, even if they had expended a lot. But regardless, they didn't even do that. They didn't even expend during the dance. Also really important to remember that it was a Tyrell who led the armies into Dorne uh, alongside Aegon the first time around. The one that whose army just vanished in the desert. After, I think it was a stop off at the Hellholt, it was. This Tyrell may have been wanting to get a little revenge for that or make good on that or do it right this time or erase that failure, something like that. So again, it's another thing that just mirrors the conquest itself is you've got Daron, who's the dragon like Aegon the dragon. You have a Tyrell as the top commander of Valarian as the head of the Navy. Very similar circumstances by the way, shout out to our good friend and occasional guest, Jim McGeehan, a.k.a. something like a lawyer. His Tumblr is full of notes on this conquest, him being a very military-minded fellow. You would definitely get something out of checking that out. Nina and myself recommend it. Here's another quote that describes what happened with the taking of the green blood and how that played out the rest of the war. With Dorne effectively divided in half by Lord Ellen's control of the Greenblood, the Dornish forces in the east and west could not aid one another directly. And from this stemmed a series of bold battles that would take a volume entire to relate in full. Many accounts of this war can be found, but the best of them is the conquest of Dorne, King Daron's own account of his campaign, which is rightly considered a marvel of elegant simplicity in both its prose and its strategies. Yandall isn't exactly neutral on the conquest of Dorne, rightly considered a marvel of elegant simplicity <laughs> in both its prose and its strategies. So again, the divide and conquer strategy is very clear here. Separate the Dorne, keep them from getting together. The reason why taking the rivers makes East and West Dorne hard to unite is for their armies to march together to combine, they have to march along the green blood where there'd be supplies and fresh water. Otherwise, they have to head out over open desert. But they can't march alongside the river when the Targaryens control it. Big problem there. Very well done, gotta say. Again, despite the uncoolness of an unprovoked invasion, they definitely did it right, at least this portion of it. Here is the next quote describing things getting wrapped up fairly quickly. Within a year, the invaders were at the gates of Sunspear and battling their way through the so-called Shadow City. In 158 AC, the Prince of Dorne and two score of the most powerful Dornish lords bent their knees to Daron at the submission of Sunspear. The young dragon had accomplished what Aegon the Conqueror never had. There were rebels still in the deserts and mountains. Men swiftly branded as outlaws, but they were a few in number to begin with. The ships control the waterways, nullified another major advantage, and all that stuff. They, the Dornish could see that they were losing, and they could see that this was a different sort of scenario. However, conspiracies. You ought to think. Two, two important factors here. Just because they bent the knee. Are they Balon Greyjoying here? Or are they like, well, we're bending the knee so we can stand back up later and with swords in hand? Like, there's no, there's no shame in bending the knee if you're just trying to bide time to attack again later. And nowhere else... In Westeros are the orders of the nobility followed less than in Dorne. Where the nobles bend the knee in the north, then the rest of the northerners under that person's charge tend to go along with that decision. Ditto the Reach, ditto the Stormlands over the West. But in Dorne, the commoners were like, I don't care if our lords bent the knee. Why does that mean we have to? So that was a 
failure of analysis on the king's part and his advisors did not recognize that state of affairs, which it endured for hundreds of years. This wasn't new. They should have known that. That's a, a, a parallel maybe to Caesar's uh, attacking Gaul. That's that's France. Yeah. And, uh, and, and and writing about it afterwards. Same thing in World War II when, when the Nazis just rolled in and swept through France pretty quickly and the president of France surrendered. But the people of France didn't. Yeah. They kept rebelling throughout the war. I mean, that was like a big, I don't know, that's what the movie Casablanca is about. Yeah, know? yeah. The, the leader surrendering doesn't always mean everyone's going to follow yeah. that lead. It depends on how well-liked that leader was or how much authority they truly have. And, well, in Dorne, the Martells haven't ruled for eons. They've only ruled for hundreds of years. They respect Nymeria, sure, but, you know, there's always been that stubborn independence. Dorne was the last kingdom to ever truly uni- be united within itself, and it maybe arguably never has fully been as united because of the just the nature of the place. It's, it's divided within itself because of the, it, la- the vast deserts between that, that separate them. They don't have as much back and forth. Geographically and culturally, right? Yeah. And, right. and maybe even historically, like the, the border skirmishes between the, the people in the mountain passes, they have more, I don't know, like some Dondarian kill, kill my uncle or whatever, whereas some nobleman in Sun Spirit doesn't know or care, care about that. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot like the free folk. They're super diverse within their own realm. And geography explains a lot of that diversity. Like the Valley of the Fens is like very isolated and thus they have a cultural microcosm going on there. There's some similar aspects to Dorne in that sense. Here's where we see the comparison to Henry V. We mentioned him as one of the three main comparisons to Daron. Nina writes that, Like Daron, Henry V of England was a young, brilliant warrior king who set out to finish what his ancestor started but never completed. Where Daron's conquest was Dorne, of course, Henry was looking to make good on his great-grandfather Edward III's claim to the French throne. Because back in this era, of course, the French and English thrones were linked within one house or two houses for hundreds of years there. About 300, if I remember correctly. (laughs) Same length as (laughs) the Targaryen reign. Within five years of renewing the English campaign in France, Henry had won the great victory at Agincourt, the famous Agincourt, made his way to Paris, negotiated a treaty which recognized him as the heir to France under the current King Charles VI and regent. They had been working for that for something like 80 years and achieved the submission that's very similar to the submission of Sunspear. Henry and his ancestors had been saying that we're kings of France when they weren't, just like Aegon had been saying we're, we can we rule the Roinar. Like you don't, but now <laughs> maybe sort of true now. But <laughs> remember, the Yellow Toad had dared Rhaenys to bring an army to Dorne, and they did, and it didn't go well. She's like, "See, <laughs> that's we knew we would win if you brought your armies here this time." That dare. Well, he did. Well, he thought he did. He, he proved it could be done, but didn't prove it could be held. And he lost 10,000 men along the way, which he apparently downplays a bit. May have actually been more. If he downplayed it, but that figure is in his book, then maybe it was 15 or 20. Or maybe it doesn't count how many people were never able to fight again. Sometimes casualties, sometimes you, you mix dead and injured in the same stat. But injured can be like, oh, you're off your feet for a week. Injured could be permanently crippled or like you die a year later from wounds that are so severe that you you're, you never fully recover. So, yeah. Or especially in those times, something like losing a foot might, you can't farm anymore or whatever. Yeah. You might just starve to death or... Good point. Yeah. yeah, so that's, there's a lot of wiggle room. And someone of Darren is trying to exaggerate the success and, and 
reduce the level of failure. This, this is exactly the sort of thing where that wiggle room exists with casualties. To be fair, that wouldn't be unique to Darren. No, it wouldn't. Right? You're right. Like You're right. pretty much every leader, every military king, whatever else, they would all do the same thing. That's true. But they didn't all write it down. <laughs> true, yeah. <laughs> that makes it, I think, a bigger lie because it's, it's, it's more people are going to believe it. It's, it's going to maybe exist longer. That lie will permeate through the ages. People just, especially as Tyrion noted, People have a reverence in this era, especially for writing. Like, if it's written, it must be true. That's a real world thing, too. Like, newspapers have operated on that principle for a long time. Like, <laughs> they'll believe it if we write it. Uh, at least enough people will. <laughs> so here's the... Here's where things started to turn pretty sour. So it started... In 157, the, com- the conquest started. The submission was in 158. By 159, he felt it was pacified enough to leave. Here's the quote describing all that. The king quickly consolidated his control of Dorne, dealing with these rebels when he found them, though not without difficulty. In one infamous episode, a poisoned arrow meant for the king was taken instead by his cousin, Prince Aemon, the younger son of Prince Viserys, who had to be sent home by ship to recover. Yet by 159, the hinterlands were pacified and the young dragon was free to return in triumph to King's Landing leaving Lord Tyrell and Dorne to keep the peace. As assurance for Dorne's future loyalty and good behavior, 14 highborn hostages were carried back with him to King's Landing, the sons and daughters of almost all the great houses of Dorne. This tactic proved less effective than Daron might have hoped, however. Whilst the hostages helped ensure the continued loyalty of their own blood, the king had not anticipated the tenacity of Dorne's small folk, over whom he had no hold. 10,000 men, it is said, died in the battle for Dorne. 40,000 more died over the course of the following three years, as common Dornishmen fought on stubbornly against the king's men. So he declares victory and then loses four times more men trying to hold on to it. 40,000, that's probably exaggerated too, right? It was probably more than that. <laughs> and how many Dornish? We have no idea what the level of Dornish casualties were. Probably around the same level, maybe not, maybe a little lower. I think a lot less. Yeah, it might have been a lot less given how hard they were to beat and, and how well they knew the territory and all that. They would have always been the ones to uh, initiate the fighting, ambushing, things like that most of the time. We don't know what the 14 highborn hostages were, which, which houses there, but guessing Martell, Shirley... Illyrian, probably. Blackmont, probably. Dane, most likely. Fowler, for sure. Gargolin, Jordane, Manwoody, Corgyle, Toland, Uller, Vaith, Will, and surely Ironwood, because Ironwood's like the second biggest. And we know that Casella Vaith was one of the hostages because she was one of Aegon the Unworthy's many lovers. So that was certainly one of them. These families would be in, in power, in a position to assert power over their other vassals and small folk, but as we saw, that wasn't enough. One other maybe misstep Daron made here was he considered marrying one of his sisters, probably not Dana, who he may have still been considering marrying himself, to the Sea Lord of Bravos to in order to help reopen and trade with Dorne, which implies that the Stepstones were not Dornish at this point and were back in pirate hands, because that would be the reason why trade was closed because of the Stepstones. So this made things worse for him because at the time, Pentos and Lys were at war with Bravo. So when the king of the Iron Throne is like, maybe I'll marry my sister to Bravo, they're like, uh-oh. So they started helping the Dornish rebels. 
let's tie him up there. Let's send soldiers or money to, to the Dornish rebels, probably just money and supplies. But what other other, whatever forms of aid you can imagine may, may have passed on as well, maybe assassination attempts or bribery here and there, who knows? But you know, those, those free cities are clever with the way they make war. A lot of times they are indirect, as we saw, subtle, less than just hiring soldiers and sending them to, to fight. But there were bigger problems for Dorne. Remember what happened again to the last Lord Tyrell. <laughs> Tyrell, this is probably not a good idea to leave a Lord Tyrell, an aggressive, vindictive Lord Tyrell, when the Tyrells and Reachmen are hated in Dorne. Why would you put this guy in charge? Well, because you're 15 and aren't very wise and experienced as good as you are in tactics. Maybe he's full of himself after his success. He just thinks he can't do any wrong, thinks that all his decisions are golden, not realizing that his administrative decisions are not good, whereas his war decisions may have been. Here's the quote and a familiar scenario, familiar incident, rather. Lord Tyrell, whom Darren had left in charge of Dorne, valiantly attempted to quell the fires of rebellion, traveling from castle to castle with each turn of the moon, punishing any supporters of the rebels with the noose, burning down the villages that harbored the outlaws, and so on. But the small folk struck back, and each new day found supplies stolen or destroyed, camps burned, horses killed, and slowly the count of dead soldiers and men-at-arms rose, killed in the alleyways of the Shadow City, ambushed amidst the dunes, murdered in their camps. But the true rebellion began when Lord Tyrell and his train traveled to Sandstone, where his lordship was murdered in a bed of scorpions. Ah, the infamous scorpion bed murder, yes, of course. It may have been Lord Corgyle himself. You say, well, of course it was. Why wouldn't it have been Lord Corgyle? It was his castle, his murder. The thing is, Lord Corgyle was like the most helpful of the Dornish lords who bent the knee. So either he was being really helpful to set up something like this, which is where I land on the conclusion, or he turned. He was earnestly helping, but then flipped back. After all, look at this, look at this, this, this thing about Lord Tyrell. It said that he, it was his custom to turn the lords out of their own beds. Wherever he went to put down rebellions, he would stay the night at their castle and sleep in their room, make them sleep in their own guest room. Like this guy sounded really overbearing, really haughty. Like he was just holding it over everyone. So you could easily see why Korgov would be like, ah, never mind. Like, I'm turning on this guy. I can also see him being maybe like Manderly, right? He's playing the game. He's got to play mm -hmm. while he's in danger, but he's looking for the opportunity. He had the chance, yeah. Uh, also, look at the, the bias in this. Valiantly attempted to quell the fires. Good point. Very good point. Like, is it surprising the Dornish weren't happy with this, this <laughs> conquest? This, what's the word I'm looking for? Holding occupation? That's yeah, it. yeah. And... And it sounds like Daron left too soon. Like Daron left because he thought it would have been pacified enough, yet he's traveling from castle to castle with each turn of the moon. It doesn't sound like it was very pacified. Sounds like it was unpacified. Or, it sounds like it was distinctly still in rebellion. Or I even wonder if Tyrell, maybe it was pacified, but Tyrell just wanted this opportunity to uh, take vengeance against Dornish people. Like, mm. who's going to stop me? We're in charge now. Maybe I'll show them. Maybe his reports were downplaying how bad it was. He wanted to make it seem like he had it under control. Didn't want to get replaced. I can see all kinds of angles, yeah. but... Uh, yeah, like Corgyle may have... See, here's, what, here's one of the first things Corgyle did, was he helped Tyrell find one of the rebel lords and, and destroy them. Maybe that guy was just someone Korgal hated. <laughs> He's like, well, I'm going to let you, I'm going to yeah. use you to take out one of my enemies. And at the same time, it'll make you think I'm your friend and then I'll turn on you. Yeah. I mean, they do have the scorpions on their shield. 
<laughs> do you really want to ally with this? It's just your fault if you, what was the scorpion and the toad example? It was like, it's yeah. in my nature to sting you. So yeah, you, you trusted the scorpion. It's your own fault there, Tyrell. <laughs> Again, echoes of Lady Mary. We're not going to bend the knee. We're going to maybe pretend to bend the knee, but you are, this is Dorne. You're not welcome here. You'll never win. <laughs> not through, not through violence. And of course, uh, and this is really what gets me too. like, what was Daron doing back in King's Landing while this guy was valiantly going from castle to castle, kicking lords out of their beds <laughs> and sleeping with their women? He was writing about his conquest. He wasn't working on how to administer. He was writing his book. <laughs> what a, yeah, that's not that's not great. I mean, Nina, like it Nina could argues, have been great. It, it would have been. We would look at it differently if things had worked out. If true. If someone in Dorne had managed it better or if he had a better plan for the aftermath in Dorne in the first place, writing the book in and of itself isn't necessarily bad, but it's bad relative to how the rest of it went. Yeah. I I real quick wanted to say too, I can't I the number of people that died down there, it's like it's like that Stalin quote about the idea of seven people dying is a tragedy, seven thousand people dying is a statistic. Yeah. It's hard to think of like every one of those forty thousand people had a a mom and a brother and a cousin and a farm and a life and emotions. And it's all just gone. And it's uh, just hard to imagine the impact of that on, on society and, and, and not just the economy and the families and the farmlands, but the emotions of the family members and the desire for vengeance against Dorn. And I'm sure that's been going on on both sides forever, but this is a lot of people all at once dying. And yeah. for it to turn out to be almost for nothing, it's unbelievable. Like a, a comparable number of Americans that died in the Revolutionary War. Mm. And imagine if just like a year later, England just took back over again. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. That mm. is, it is really hard to fathom. And, and it's surely not something that was in the book. Like I doubt Darren wrote about each one of these people is a, he didn't put that in the yeah. Conquest of Dorne. No, he wouldn't, that, his kingly view of the world wouldn't allow him to think of those individuals as individuals like that. Probably wouldn't have started the Conquest in the first place if he thought about things like that. And Yandel's clearly not thinking about that yeah. and is describing all this as valiant. Yeah, you know? Yandel's so. very much won over by this book. The propaganda worked on him and we have to yeah. untangle it to try to get to the truth, I think. Nina pushes back a little on my idea that he was writing the book back in King's Landing. I mean, he may have done a lot of the writing while on campaign, like while the ideas were fresh. Yeah. Which is, yeah, that's, that's possible. I, I would think he didn't finish it, though, on campaign. That's, maybe that's a bit much. Still... She agrees that there's a very fair ground to criticize Darren. Like, even if Lord Tyrell wasn't the right man for the choice for the, to administer Dorne, I mean, we think we could say that kind of from a state of maybe from hindsight, although, frankly, I think it was obvious to begin with. There's nothing stopping him from reversing his decision and pointing someone else to be in charge, but he stuck with Tyrell and that didn't work. That's another thing that with dragons, it might have gone better because the dragons are really good for communication, right? Yeah. Just being able to get messages back and forth, being able to go see these cities that, that the Tyrell Lord is going to quash rebellions or the dragon just showing up but like, uh, I hope things are going okay, by the way. Here I am with my <laughs> dragon. Don't make me come back. That's true. All right, so here is what happened as a result of his death. It was a big deal. It wasn't just one dead Tyrell. It was the call to start it all back up again. As word spread of his demise, open rebellion swept Dorne from one end to the other. In 160 AC, the young dragon himself was forced to return to Dorne to put down the rebels. He won several small victories as he fought through the Boneway while Lord Alan Oakenfist descended once again upon the Planky Town and the Greenblood. Apparently broken, the Dornishmen agreed to meet to renew their fealty 
and discuss terms. But it was treachery and murder they plotted, not peace. So only one more year later, this happened. Just enough time for him to write that book, I guess. And then he has to go back to the campaign and because he's going to die in this. So the book was clearly done before he left, unless someone else finished it. But there's no indication of that. So they fight all the way back to Sunspear and win. The Dragon Knight, who had been hit by that poisoned arrow, he jumped in front of Daron to take the poisoned arrow himself. Talk about a, a true Kingsguard. Like, you can't prove yourself any better than that. He recovered and was part of this campaign. At some point in this campaign, he defeated some unnamed Dornish champion. Now, that's a tantalizing missing detail. Could that have been a Dane? Did he beat, like, the Sword of the Morning? Or did he be, like, a Knight of the Hellholt? In that mush we refer to that, that happens on Westeros.org, they, they had it be a Knight of the, the Hellholt. They called mm-hmm. him the Hell Knight, which, of course, you would call him the Hell Knight. It's like, yeah, now that's a foe. The Hell Knight. Yeah, mm-hmm. give me that character. But it could have been like an Ironwood, like someone like Archibald Ironwood, or the guy sent with the Quentin Arch with his big yeah. hammer. Yeah. Who yeah. knows? It's lots of possibilities that I like thinking about who this Dornish champion could have been. Whoever he was, mm-hmm. the Dragon Knight beat him. Do you think that a normal man would have recovered from the poison necessarily? Do you think it was a Targaryen resistance that made it so that Aemon survived? Good call. Maybe, maybe. I like that call. That's very good. He also, I mean, if he's jumping in front of the poison arrow, he would hopefully have the wherewithal to like put the thickest part of his plate mail in front of it. So like it would maybe only a little bit of the poison got him. But I like that idea. Yeah, Yeah, maybe he's a little extra, little extra recovery potential, like plus five constitution. Yeah, yeah. Plus two poison resistance. (laughs) 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 Another loss besides this Dornish champion was... Lord Cregan, the old man of the north, as in the Cregan Stark we'll see in the Dance of the Dragons, his heir, Rickon, named for Cregan's father, Rickon, dies in the, one of the final battles of this reconquest of Dorne. So that was a bit of a tragedy. That was a big deal in the north. His loss was felt severely, and it would take, what, two? It would, he'd, he'd, he would marry another time because his second wife, Allie Blackwood, there were daughters only, and he would marry a third time and have more children. That brought the Starks into the era of Dunkin' Egg. All right, the parlay. Here's where the actual assassination happened. Let's talk about that. Here's the quote of the parlay. In a bloody betrayal, the Dornish attacked the young dragon and his retinue beneath the peace banner. Three knights of the King's Guard were slain, attempting to protect the king. A fourth, to his eternal shame, threw down his sword and yielded. Prince Amon, the dragon knight, was wounded and captured, but not before cutting down two of the betrayers. The young dragon himself died with black fire in his hand, surrounded by a dozen enemies. Oof. If we ever get this scene on television of some kind, it's going to be really something. It's going to be epic. It's going to be probably desperate and not and not the kind of fight where people are making grand stands. It's probably just grabbing and holding in close quarters and really desperate. Really should be excellent if we ever get it. One of the three king's guard that was killed is the trivia question. Uh, the other two, we don't know who they were. The fourth who threw down his sword, we don't know who that was either. I'm sure that house is glad that we don't know who that is. <laughs> They're like, yeah, <laughs> let's not remember him, whoever he was. So that's only five king's guard. Eamon was captured, and maybe he was captured. That seems like design to use him as a hostage. He's, a, he's an actual Targaryen, but not the king. So that allows them to have someone to ransom or someone to do something with. And he was also really famous and noble and chivalrous. Maybe they thought he did, shouldn't be killed because of he was a little outstanding. I don't know. I think it's mostly just a hostage thing, but killing Prince Aemon would have made people even more upset than they were. 
Not that they weren't really, really upset by this. Yes, this is an interesting argument here. Is any does anything go when your country's being invaded? Can you is this was this attacking during a peace parlay? Was this kosher? Was this breaking a rule? Was this is this okay? I go both ways on it. They follow the same religion, both sides here. And and a peace banner is supposed to be holy. Like you're supposed to have the gods are supposed to be watching over. Like we wouldn't break the peace that we've ordained the gods are keeping here. So that's the part that I think some people are, would look at and be like, okay, no, that wasn't okay, because this is an important social convention. Even in war, you have to have parlays that are parlays, even when someone's an invader. On the other side, anything goes. These guys are dirty invaders coming to kill all our people. Like, where do you fall on this, Sean? I'm torn. Part of me feels like when you're at war, like you're, the plan is to go kill people. So like you're going to make rules about which people to kill. Like the rule yeah. is don't kill people. Once you break that rule, what are, what are the other rules for? But on the other hand, like how can you ever negotiate for peace or even try if you can't trust that you'll be allowed to do it without being attacked? Also, like, I think what it really comes down to is who wins. I think the person who wins gets to say if it was okay or not. Yeah. I think both sides in war invariably break the rules, but the ones that win don't talk about that or justify the rule breaking for the sake of the victory, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Like, I don't think anyone thinks it's correct to kill civilians, but even before the U.S. dropped the nuclear bombs, we were killing tens of thousands of civilians every single night for weeks. Yeah. It's hardly talked about Mm. that we did that. You know what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, So it is really, it is really tough. I don't think that there's a right answer here. I think that it, it does depend on how you see it. I mean, arguably, by destroying the parlay, they may have set back future parlays. And they're like, well, the Dornish, can they be trusted in the future? On the other hand, do the Dornish care? Like, oh, we don't care. We don't want to parlay with you. You guys are just aggressive invaders. Like, why should we treat you as equals when you're going to do stuff like this? You need to suggest, well, what's the comparison to the Red Wedding? Is that super different? It's, I'd say it's definitely different because, but not in some ways. They violated guest right. They also attacked their own allies. That's different. When you attack your own allies, Maybe he's arguing that, hey, the, the North were the invaders in the Riverlands. Maybe. I don't know. I, don't know. Yeah. I mean, they weren't trying to conquer the phrase, but they were forcefully making them into allies. So I don't know. It, it's, it is a tricky, it's an ethical conundrum. It could be worse too if, if Lord Tyrell was under a peace banner when he rode into a Dornish Lord's home and said, I'm going to sleep in your bed and sleep <laughs> with your women and yeah. eat your food and there's nothing you can do about it. Like, nice peace, peace banner. banner. What does peace that really banner. mean to us? Yeah. <laughs> I even thought of that. Like, what if they rode in with a peace banner, then took it down and attacked? Yeah. Uh, yeah. How does that you know, work? Like, What's the dynamics of that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How much can you hide behind that? Were they were they really there for peace? Can you? Are we even sure about that? Yeah. So Yandel definitely wouldn't tell us if he even knew that there was some plot that they were using a peace banner to sneak in with. So true that. One of the reasons I'm skeptical that they tried to capture Aemon the Dragon Knight to give him as a hostage is they didn't give him as a hostage. They hung him in a cage in the bone way later and he was rescued but that wasn't that clearly they weren't trying to get money out of it they weren't trying to profit they were just trying to this is what happens and i guess so i guess they wanted to keep him to tor- torment him or the decision was changed along the way who knows anyway not only was daron killed not only was aemon captured but aemon was wielding dark sister daron was wielding Blackfire, and daron was wearing the crown of Aegon the conqueror Our episode, The Lost Valyrian Steel, with our good friend Tommy Pappas, delves into this topic a bit. We do know the Blackfire and Dark Sister turned back up. The crown never did. The crown still hasn't turned up. Was he actually definitely wearing it at that moment? Yes. Yes. Okay. He he wore his crown like like Stannis would wear his in battle. Like, there's there's kings that wear their crown 
to stand out and be well. Of course, he had his Kingsguard around him at all times. You could kind of tell who he was. He had that distinct gold and black armor, but part of that's the crown. Rob wore his crown most of the time, too. I can imagine that he might have had it or carried it with him, or but was wearing his helmet in the middle of that. I can also imagine not. I can imagine he wasn't wearing his helmet and he's yeah. wearing a stupid crown. But. <laughs> Either way, they got a hold of it and it's still gone. So yeah, check out that episode if you want to know what happened to it. We think there's a strong chance it turns back up with Young Griff, aka Fagon, but we'll see about that. Minor thought, but something else just flashed in my mind. Thinking about the practicality of a clown, of a clown, of a clown, <laughs> of a crown. <laughs> clowns in battle, uh, not very practical. <laughs> Afterwards, sure. they should wear the crowns. Yeah. And, <laughs> the crown uh, clown. <laughs> I wonder how much they, how much they were wearing their armor in those hot deserts, and and that maybe getting shot by a poison arrow may not have been any armor or as much armor uh, yeah. to protect you. Good point, you know? good point. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, maybe just chain mail with covers and yeah, maybe not as much plate mail. Yeah, even chain mail would be hot. It would be hot, hot, yeah. hot. It would soak up the heat of the sun and just burn your skin. And like, or, or I, it's the type of thing like in, in modern armies, it's like a, it's part of discipline to like keep your helmet on because it's uncomfortable. It's heavy and it's hot and it's uncomfortable and people really want to take it off. And it's something that kind of has to be enforced to yeah. keep your helmet on, yeah. right? I can imagine in the desert wearing armor, like even the people who are supposed to enforce that rule might be like, let's just take our armor off. Like we're going to have heat casualties and there's not enough water and we're moving too slow. Like I can imagine it being a decision that someone at some point says, like, let's just take the armor right, off. It might have been the right decision, not a wrong decision. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, maybe eventually in the middle of the battle, they regret it or they put it back on. But generally yeah. speaking, traveling in a caravan through the desert, they probably would have had more casualties from people to suffering heat. Which is heat why it's so hard to invade Dorne. Because yeah, if you take your armor off, then you're vulnerable to ambush. You can't put it on when someone's like att- attacking you right there. Okay. You need time yeah. to put that armor. That's why you have squires because it's hard to put that armor on. I bet the Dornish soldiers ambushing, but probably not wearing plate mail, mm. right? They, they might have some mobile. sort of light yeah. leather or cloth or something, but they're moving quick and they're staying cool. And yeah. Think of Victorian. It's not as hot in the neck, but he wore his armor day and night because of the air, the poison arrows from the bog devils. So the similar thing is like, well, if I take my armor off, like this is terrible to wear my armor all the time, but taking it off is worse. And that's why it's so hard to go into these really extreme geographical locations where the locals really know how to use that to their advantage. And the invaders do not. <laughs> all- it's also not exciting riding, but I. But the reality of wearing your armor all the time, like think of what a hassle it would be to go to the bathroom. Mm, yeah. It, like it hassle. might be like a 30 minute ordeal. You know what I, I mean? I remember like, who it was. I said, yeah, every, all knights piss in their armor. Yeah. There's just, a, I, yeah, I really love yeah. in the Stormlight <laughs> Archive, there's a, there's a, there's a plot line and a, a conversation that happens in Brandon Sanderson's The Stormlight Archive where one character is curious and she's talking to a, a soldier, a man who wears like this big armor. And she's like, well, what do you do in like battle? Like if you have to use the bathroom, he's like, I shit myself. That's what happens. <laughs> it's one of the, there's many reasons why battlefields smell bad. That's an underrated reason as part of it. <laughs> Not only do dead people lose bowels loosen, but the live peoples do as well. <laughs> that's another thing that's hard to convey in writing or even in television, that, 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 that bad odor, which would be constant. Like you can show one scene or say it one time, but as an audience, you don't continuously Keep Until getting that bad smell, smell that a soldier TV. would. <laughs> we need these yeah, can't wait to watch all the battle scenes. I would put in the, the mute button the on mute. The, <laughs> the smell of vision for that. Yeah, <laughs> mute the smell of vision. When we're watching the baking show, though, turn that up all the way. Like Hot Pie's Bakery <laughs> Extravaganza. That's my new favorite TV show. Yeah, Kitchen Nightmares with Hot Pie. 
I'll talk about the aftermath. Of course, the conquest was just done, and there was no impetus to continue after that. There was anger towards Dorne. There were calls for revenge, but that wasn't going to happen. Starting off, though, let's discuss a few things and build up to the events that happened. First of all, King Daron I's reign was thus four short years in length. His ambition had proved too great. Glory may be everlasting, yet it is fleeting as well. Soon forgotten in the aftermath of even the most famous of victories, if they lead to greater disasters. Yeah, and he's not alone in this of being a conqueror whose ultimately his legacy was failure, but is still remembered fondly as if he was extremely successful. The Red Kraken's a good example. His victories were cunning and clever and and unexpected, and he played the diplomacy game extremely well. He understood the global scenario and where he could press his advantage extremely cunningly and knew how what he could get away with and what he would be punished for and push those to the extremes. But ultimately, his reign was a massive failure for the Iron Islands. They, the pushback against him was such that many, many thousands died. There was starvation, yet they remember him fondly. So it isn't just the Targaryens that think this way. The Ironborn do too. Like this Westeros just loves their heroic warrior leaders who were young. I mean, heck, Red Kraken was died at like 21 or something. I forget exactly, but yeah, he was real young as well, maybe 23, but not as young as Daron or as Rob, but pretty darn young. His body passed through Cape Wrath. It shows us just how beloved he was in his own time, how tragic this death was for people, especially people who hated the Dornish, like those in the Stormlands, which is where Cape Wrath is. Quote, Farther south, a broad plain opens up, rolling gently down to the Sea of Dorn, where numerous small fishing villages dot the shoreline. A thriving port and market, the Weeping Town, as it came to be known because it was where the body of the slain hero, King Daron I Targaryen, returned to his kingdom after his murder in Dorne, stands here, and much of the region's trade passes through its harbor. Yeah, so the Weeping Town. It's an extremely short moment in the life of this town, but the whole place is named for it just because the dead body of the king was there for a few days. The the hero king, it says. It's like, hmm, goes to show. That's what we're talking about. Yeah, this the way he's remembered doesn't line up with our analysis of the man, but hey, that's that's part of the fun, isn't it? By the way, Weeping Town is where the first version of A Song of Ice and Fire for a Mountain Blade. The really, really well-developed mod for that. It's where you start. You start at the Weeping Town. (laughs) Tidbit for you. There was no marriage and no children, of course, from him. George was once asked in 2008 whether Daron was gay. And not because there's any evidence of it, just because there's no evidence of his sexuality at all. So whenever you don't know... I mean, hetero is your safest guess, but you will, could easily be wrong because there's plenty of gay people out there. And dare with when you have an unspecified sexuality, well, it's, it remains possible. George originally had stated that Daron wasn't gay and had married, but then changed his mind on that. Daron never did get married. So that doesn't necessarily mean he changed his mind on the other. So it's just an unknown at this point. So he may have been considering marriage. He may have been considering mar- marrying M- Mariah. Miria, Miria Martell himself. She ended up marrying Daron II instead, but she was around then, so that would have been possible. And of course, conquerors marrying a daughter of a defeated foe is extremely standard practice. So we saw that with the Barrow Kings. We saw that with the Stark Kings. We saw that with the Durandans and the Tarth. Tons of examples of that. 
And we saw that with Oris Baratheon in the Durandid line specifically not too long ago. And maybe he would have been the one to arrange the marriage of Baylor to Dana. Dana was expecting to marry, marry Dana him, herself, but maybe Daron had planned on marrying his sister to his brother instead of marrying one of them himself. Who knows? Bob, of course, already had a marriage plan and changed it. That didn't go well. But with Daron, we just don't know at this point. Though it was a bit of tumult, his death caused some tumult. The succession was not tumultuous. More perhaps the decisions his successor made, but really they overall calmed things down. Baylor the Blessed, as weird of a king as he was, he was definitely the right salve for this immediate aftermath. The full story is not something we have time for today. But the first thing he did was deny vehemently the calls to execute the hostages, which was okay. If you need to stop the cycle of violence, good first step. Now his barefoot walking from King's Landing to Sunspear, maybe that wasn't necessary, but boy, did that have an impact too. Didn't, didn't exactly have the same impact on everybody universally, but it was impressive. <laughs> yeah, he, it wasn't just that he didn't execute them. He returned them. Mm-hmm. Personally. On foot through the <laughs> desert personally, yeah. It was really something else. Like, when we talk about the difference between Tywin and Titos and, and Tommen and Joffrey, talk about opposite. It's harder to be more opposite <laughs> than this. Yeah. <laughs> Baylor is like, okay, you came with extreme war. I come with extreme peace. We come in peace. I bring you love. Yeah, so that was Baylor, perhaps with a little bit of that insanity. But hey, maybe Daron was a little insane too. I mean, it's a crazy endeavor for both of them. He might have also gone insane on that trek. He might have been very sane when he set out, but I don't know, dehydration and trauma Being through the desert by trek Vipers might have too, apparently was part of it. Being poisoned <laughs> and on and on, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, I agree. And he may not have been all there in the first place. So yeah, you're right. I mean, this this guy was some of his his decisions became more and more erratic over time, but you're right. Maybe this was he may have been somewhat sane when this started and it changed over time, but you're right to yeah. to not assume he was this in my head canon, he was very sane and very intelligent and very brave with this initial decision and trek. That's my my take. Anyone out there is welcome to their own opinion, but I think it's really hard to disagree with the brave part of that. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> brave as hell and tough. <laughs> yeah, because he did that. <laughs> he did that. He didn't just set out to do it. He did it. It is part of why I want to say that he was sane because I think he might have been less brave if he was insane. If he didn't understand what he was even doing, if he was just crazy, I'm going to go able walk to the process desert. The consequences, yes, but, yes. But if he knew that it would be tough and dangerous and difficult and risky and did it anyway, that's what makes him really brave. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good call. As I said earlier, just the fact that this war happened at all is an argument for uniting the kingdoms because there's, there there had been and even when before Daron. Aleandra was approving raids. There were the vulture kings and all that. So there was war back and forth, even if it wasn't to this scale. So even though it was an unprovoked assault, it did maybe lead to this permanent peace that lasted for quite a while. Hard to say how things would have gone without this invasion, whether they would have just coexisted for a while or whether there would have been other attempts to marry Dorne or attack Dorne. Who knows? As things went, though, this was part of the process that brought Dorne into the realm. Baylor, obviously super interesting. We'll cover him some other time. Dana the Defiant, we would love to learn more about her. She comes up in a lot of places, mostly in our Blackfire episodes. She's the mother of Damon Blackfire. Raina is the next daughter, uh, or sister rather, sorry, who joined the faith, became a Septa. 
All right, maybe she wasn't as interesting <laughs> as her two sisters, but the others are super interesting, triple interesting in Dana's case. And Elena is also triple interesting, the third sister. Seven children, three husbands, sat on the small council without actually sitting on the small council. In, in one of those, like, her husband was a dummy, but everybody knew that she was the person in charge, so if they appointed him, he, she would make all the decisions. <laughs> and that's, that's what happened. She also lived a really long life. She might be the most interesting of all of them. But there's a lot of missing details on Dana, so we'll leave that up. So Elena and Dana, very curious about more of them, and more on Baylor, frankly, and heck, Reyna too, but, you know. <laughs> and the name Daron continued to be used for Targaryens quite often. There was obviously Daron II, the most obvious. Then Egg and Betha's third son, Daron, who was gay. Uh, and then there was the second son of Ares II and Rhaella, who died stillborn. Or not stillborn, but died in the cradle, I guess. And let's talk about how he's remembered. I said earlier that he's one of the most cited characters, just in little anecdotes here and there that pop up in ways that you might not even notice. If you were to reread the series starting today, really thinking about Daron the First, you'd be like, wow, there really are a lot of mentions of him. And it comes up in a lot of different places because he was really beloved by the people. Well, not the Dornish people. <laughs> they don't have statues of him down there. <laughs> I would actually like to see that too. How is Daron the First remembered in Dorn? It's probably the, very much the opposite of how well he's remembered in Westeros or in the rest of Westeros. But that's also an open question because we, we just don't know. Sam 5, A Feast for Crows, is one of our examples right here. The gates of the citadel were flanked by a pair of towering green sphinxes with the bodies of lions, the wings of eagles, and the tails of serpents. One had a man's face, one a woman's. Just beyond stood Scribe's Hearth, where old towners came in search of acolytes to write their wills and read their letters. Half a dozen bored scribes sat in open stalls, waiting for some custom. At other stalls, books were being bought and sold. Sam stopped at one that offered maps and looked over a hand-drawn map of the citadel to ascertain the shortest way to the Seneschal's court. The path divided where the statue of King Daron the first sat astride his tall stone horse, his sword tilted toward Dorne. A seagull was perched on the young dragon's head and two more on the blade. <laughs> the dragon must I, have three gulls. <laughs> <laughs> I thought a lot about that moment with the, the seagulls perched. I, I, I never concluded anything, but I felt like it was an interesting detail and I wondered if there was some symbolic meaning to that. I wonder too, my best guess is that Yes, there's this great statue here, but like the birds are crapping all over it. And that's really the, the yeah. message here. But also the fact that it's at the Citadel is probably Nina has a great theory here. It's probably because he was he wrote the book like that. He's a scholar king. He's yeah. the one that most yeah. maybe represents the values of the Citadel in that sense. Obviously, the making war is not a value of the Citadel, but writing books is. And they clearly Yandel loves the book. It's probably very popular at the Citadel in general for some of the reasons Caesar's book is still popular. Yeah, so that's that's probably it. But it is noteworthy that this warrior king is celebrated in this city of, of that's in an area that's supposed to be about knowledge. Like, it's right by where all the scrolls and maps and all the scribes and everything are sitting out, and there's King Daron. So, yeah, so it worked. The book, his, his book was way more successful than the conquest about it. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> that was his true success. He was remembered, but... Maybe not for the way he thought he would be. Or not for the means he oh, thought. Oh, yeah. Well, that is interesting, too. The idea that there's just birds perched on his sword. Like, all right, what good did that your sword do? But you're enshrined at the Citadel for the book he wrote. The you book know, that's is a, more, a better legacy, more enduring. meaningful. Yeah, yeah. More, more people would want to talk about that. More, more, there's more, the more growth comes from such a thing. Even though it's a book about making war. <laughs> it's, it's also a book about <laughs> genealogy and customs and the difference between the Orange people, which that part is scholarship. Presumably, he didn't 
lie about that stuff. I don't know why he would need to lie about their culture and customs. He might lie about the number of people in the battles. That you can see, but why would he say the Dornish have dark skin in certain places when they don't? Like, that would be a weird thing to lie about. Like, what's the point? You know, so anyway, so I, I somewhat assume that stuff is accurate. Here's another example. Tyrion V. I almost said Tyrion V. <laughs> Tyrion V, because in Roman numerals. <laughs> Tyrion V, A Storm of Swords. He mentions the book when they are set to greet, and specifically the genealogies, the, the, the different cultures, the three types of Dornish people, when they're standing there waiting for Doran Martell to arrive, and oops, Doran doesn't show up, but Oberyn does instead. So that happens. That's a fun one. We don't need to bother quoting that one. It's just Tyrion thinking about the three types. He's just idly waiting. So he's like, yeah, in that book that Daron wrote, there's Salty, Dornishman, Sandy. So he's just thinking, good way to set that up for the, for the, for the reader. Tyrion's the well-read one, so it fits very well. Then we have this unusual line that comes from Danny Four in A Dance with Dragons. Skahaz is Kandak, is Darlorak. Your radiance will forgive me, but only one who is not herself Giscari would not understand the difference. Oft have I heard that yours is the blood of Aegon the Conqueror, Jaehaerys the Wise, and Daron the Dragon. The noble Hisdar is of the blood of Mazdan the Magnificent, Hazrak the Handsome, and Zarak the Liberator. Oh, Hazrak the Handsome. See, mm. yeah, she's got a point there. Hazrak the Handsome. I mean, don't go against him, <laughs> let alone Zarak the Liberator. No, but the... The point here is that it's one of our only example, it may be the only example of someone outside Westeros, someone who's not extremely favorable to Daron. Well, there is one or two other examples, but, but that person is inside Westeros. So someone outside of Westeros referring to this character and how they refer to him, they call him Daron the dragon. They didn't say the young dragon, they just said the dragon, which is another reason why it's like this parallel to Aegon, who was, Aegon was called the dragon. Aegon the conqueror, Aegon the dragon, that was one of his, that was like his secondary nickname. The conqueror was his main nickname, but yeah. Yeah, that's Daron the first, not Daron the second. So they remember the warrior king and not the one who actually ruled a long time and changed policy and had a much bigger impact on the realm. But the short-lived warrior king, they remember that. <laughs> Heck, they do remember Jaehaerys, though, so it's not all about the warriors. But they remember it's Aegon and Daron and then Jaehaerys, who ruled for by far the longest of any king of Westeros on the Iron Throne. Here's another one. Yes. Going back to A Game of Thrones, John's first chapter, where that first quote about Daron is, George doesn't want us to forget about that. It's been a long time since he wrote that passage, so he maybe gives us a little clue to keep thinking about that. At Dance with Dragons, John 7, quote, When John had been a boy at Winterfell, his hero had been the young dragon, the boy king who had conquered Dorne at the age of 14. Despite his bastard birth, or perhaps because of it, Jon Snow had dreamed of leading men to glory, just as Daron had, of growing up to be a conqueror. Now he was a man grown, and the wall was his, yet all he had were doubts. He could not even seem to conquer those. I feel John gained a little wisdom in the yes. time that passed between that first conversation with Benjamin. Yeah. You are. You really brought your A game today, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> your AA, Azora High game? No. John has the same ancestors as Danny on the dragon side. So he will perhaps one day realize... That's his family. Daron the first is his ancestor. Not a direct ancestor since Daron had no children, but they're same bloodline. Daron lost a lot of men, as was said. This Benjamin pointed that out. John did overlook that initially. He's maybe not thinking about it as much here, but maybe he should. And John, Daron died a few late a few years later. So maybe don't try to be too much like him. Don't get stabbed by oh. 
<laughs> Too late. <laughs> but not just John <laughs> getting killed by people he trusts. Let's talk about what you brought up at the beginning, Sean. The Young Wolf veteran listeners of History of Westeros will have heard of make this comparison before. It's one of the earliest parallel lives, the earliest parallel lives we highlighted, as I said. Number one, here's a few examples. Tried to conquer South. Bit of a military prodigy, but also had some talented advisors, right? Like Blackfish was a very talented commander that giving him advice. Oakenfist, ditto for King Daron. Died with no heirs. Died during a parlay meeting that was supposed to be peaceable. Like a wedding was supposed to be, violence was to be off limits. So is this parlay. Died with his personal guard all around him. Most of them died as well, with maybe one of them captured. Great John captured versus Prince Aemon captured. There's mention of goat tracks. Remember the goat tracks. Rob evaded the Golden Tooth, the fortress in the West that controls the access point to the West from the Riverlands, and he evaded it using a goat track that Greywind found for him. And those goat tracks of Daron's actually get mentioned in another conversation in A Dance with Dragons by John and Stannis. Quote, When the young dragon conquered Dorne, he used a goat track to bypass the Dornish watchtowers on the Boneway. I know that tale as well, but Darren made too much of it in that vainglorious book of his. <laughs> Ships won that war, not goat tracks. Oakenfist broke the planky town and swept halfway up the green blood whilst the main Dornish strength was engaged in the prince's pass. Stannis' take is very interesting. Stannis is a, is a guy who knows the power of fleets. He led the fleet against Victorian. He, was, he knows the power of ships. He knows. So I like that quote a lot. Stannis is like, Dennis is someone who understands to cut through the BS. He reads the book and just doesn't just take it all to heart. He's like, nah, some of this is exaggerated. Vain, glorious book of his. Yep. Yeah, Stannis yeah. Is, is very rational, very uh, very sober about the whole thing, where John is not. <laughs> and much more experienced, much more wise when it comes to the reality of war and battles. He understands yeah. what really won that. Yeah, know. he's, a na- like I said, naval guy. Yeah, so he, he, he has the experience to make that judgment, right? Like you say, like, yeah, yeah. he knows. He knows what he's talking about. And... The way Daron was remembered may reflect the way Rob is and will be remembered. I mean, we're still in that phase. Rob really hasn't been dead that long in the terms of chronology within the books. Even though both of them won, but ultimately lost, they left a huge impact on their followers. The short life, the string of victories, the unlikely insight and capability in war, the dishonorable death. These are things that are remembered. These are things that get sung about. They get written about. Sansa also really cared about the young dragon and Aemon the Dragon Knight and Baylor the Blessed. This era really captures a lot of hearts and minds, partly because it's a little more understandable. It's a little more, for people in current times of Westeros, it's a little more similar to their era because if you go back any farther and there's dragons everywhere, and that's harder to relate to a world with dragons when you live in a world without them. So this was like the first post-Dragon King an era that kicked off that era. So it's it's more relatable to the current characters. Just real quick, I'm still pondering that Stannis take. I wonder if it's it's almost a little sad. I bet Stannis had heroes when he was young too. Mm. And through his life, they've lost the, yeah. the shine that they had. Like it's happening maybe a little bit with John. Maybe, maybe it should. Maybe you, if you grow up with military heroes and you grow up to realize war sucks, maybe you should have had different heroes. I don't know. Yeah, that's a good one. Another parallel besides Rob is one that's ongoing. Young Griff, Fagon. Think of these alarmingly similar quotes. Shout out to, by the way, our good friend Scad over at Davos Fingers. Actually, he's the one that noticed this before I did, if I recall correctly. And if I don't recall correctly, well, shout out to him anyway. Good dude. <laughs> he, you have a dragon. He stands before you, says Daron. 
What does young Griff say when he's introduced to the Golden Company? I am the only dragon you need. That's the exact mm. quote. That is a very similar sentiment. And the Golden Company's 10,000 He probably men. read that book too. He may have. Oh, yeah, you're right. They gave he him that education. He's been sort of instructed and prepped for all this. He's certainly read you that book. You are totally yeah. right. He definitely read that book. And even though we have no proof, he did. I, I guarantee he did. <laughs> you're right. Totally mm-hmm. did. Same age, warrior-minded, might have a similar length lifespan. <laughs> and guess mm-hmm. where they landed with their armies in the Stormlands as they're invading Westeros near the Weeping Town, <laughs> where, where mm. young Daron died, or was his body was brought. That's foreshadowing, the ominous kind. I don't expect this kid to live super long either. He might also be the one to turn up with Blackfire and the Conqueror's Crown. That's something we theorize in that other episode, the Lost Valyrian Steel and elsewhere. So more on that if you check out that episode. So definitely bring in those Conqueror vibes b- back. Not just Aegon, but Daron the First, the young dragon. So young Griff walking in those same footsteps, perhaps in a lot of similar ways, unavoidably similar, <laughs> similar, similar background. So, all right. Last few questions here, our trivia and our outro. Guilty Undertaker says, isn't there a story of Alexander the Great getting around an army with a goat track? There are, I think, multiples of that. He got around one fortress, and I think it was Sogdiana, with these guys were really high up, and they were raining down missiles on his men. They tried many times and didn't work, but he found some, his men found a way to get above the men on the heights. So the guys on the heights were then sort of outflanked from above. And yeah, he did, I think he did use goat tracks and other spots using local guides to get around. He was very aggressive and... and energetic. One thing you can say about Alexander the Great, extremely energetic, led from the front, was just woke up early every day. Just, I wish I had that much energy, not his aggressiveness, but man, that kind of level of energy this guy had. It may may have been a tactic, but the night before his great battle, the biggest of the battles he fought against the Persians, he slept in. They had to go wake him up. (laughs) Who sleeps in on the day? Like, how can you sleep at all before a battle? Some, well, he's probably up all night the night before. He may have been, but still, like, he was, they, they had to, like, poke him a bunch of times, like, get up, dude, get up, the battle. But it may have been a tactic to make everyone think he was that com- confident. <laughs> he was mm. like, I saw confident. Mm. I'm like, I'm so sure we're going to win. I can sleep in. <laughs> and that that confidence trickles down a bit. But maybe on some level, he was that confident. Maybe he played it out enough times in his head, yeah. gone through all the rehearsals, and okay, we got this. Yeah, it could be know. both. It could be legitimate. Like, he may have really been that confident. Did you just and say wanted he had to... rehearsals, John? <laughs> he rehearsed. <laughs> he rehearsed for this. Did was Nathan Fielder there standing ready? <laughs> if he was smart, he rehearsed for it. So I feel like... Nathan Fielder's smart. Yeah, so. yeah. Yes, he is. He got really good grades at business school. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like this is the kind of confidence Daron exuded. Just like, oh, like he was sure of everything. Every decision he made is like, we will succeed. And Alexander the Great had that same sort of energy of like, yeah, failure? Not an option. I don't understand failure. Andrew Gilbert says the Spartans were defeated by a goat track. I've read a lot of Spartan history. I don't remember this exact one, but I totally believe you. I'm gonna have to go look that up to find out the which. I do. Examples. Yeah, I think that they, they were betrayed. Like, oh, at the gates own, of fire. The Persians. Yes, you're yeah. right. Uh, yeah, that totally happened at, at at the gates of fire at Thermopylae. Yes, they were yeah. a, a traitor led some immortals around to attack their position from behind. Okay, I do remember that now. Thanks for the example. Yeah, good call. Sweet Melissa says. He is called Young Griff. Doesn't end for people who, who have the young moniker. Young Wolf, Young Dragon, Young Griff. Young Griffin. I mean, that is Young Griffin, right? 
So it is an animal. You're right. That's that doesn't bode well. As if there weren't other so many ominous things about that boy's future. <laughs> Here's another one for the file. <laughs> Sweet Melissa also says, "Have fun in Santa Fe, and can't wait to hear your interview with George." Looking forward to all the hot D coverage on the horizon. Us too, sweet Melissa. Us too. We're all going through this together. It's going to be a blast. The future is bright. TKOK Podcast Network, a.k.a. Tommy Pappas, a.k.a. the same person who joined us for that episode I mentioned, The Lost Valyrian Steel, where we talk about The Crown, Blackfire, Dark Sister, and other missing Valyrian Steel items. Sends a super chat and a bunch of hearts. We heart you too, Tommy. Trivia question was, again, we know Aemon the Dragon Knight was one of King Daron the First's Kingsguard. The other, unnamed, remembered in the POV of Ari Zokart. Ari Zokart remembers his ancestor, Olivar Okart, the Green Oak, dying alongside his king, King Daron the First, well, bravely. I can also say to you, Z's, multiple yeah. people got this one, and multiple people said, keep the questions, the difficulty, difficulty level you've been doing. They're meant to be a little difficult so that they can ponder it. They cool. Like, they like the level. All right. I'll keep going as we have been. Thank you for the feedback. Mentioned some other episodes. Uh, Lost Figure and Steel, mentioned several times. Our Blackfire series, you can start with Aegon the First, the Unworthy, or just go right to Daron the Second, the Good, who is has a lot of the parallel here. But really, that era is... Really interesting and immediately follows this era. So I do recommend that. Next time, no episode on Sunday, but Monday at 6 Eastern. That will be our time for the entire run of House of the Dragon. So after House of the Dragon season is over, we'll be returning to Sundays. But it's also, so that's Monday at 6 Eastern. Also Saturdays at 3. With guests. With guests, yeah. Mondays at 6 with Sean. Saturdays at 3 without Sean and with guests. And also the other context is that Mondays are our reviews where we have Sean and Saturdays are our previews where we look at spoilers because we'll, we have spoilers that we don't want to share with Sean. Right, exactly. So that should be a lot of fun. I'm almost certainly going to make some attempts at predictions, and I'm almost certainly going to get spoiled on some stuff down the road. Yeah, but you will, our focus but we'll will at least be let the episode that we watched and yeah. what I construed from that and where I think it's going. Yeah. Where Saturday, you can look at like the writings that exist and where you think that's going to go for the next episode. Yeah. No doubt. Well, and we do, we will say we have a few guests signed up already. We will have a couple of the ladies from Direwolf City joining us. We will have Girls Gone Cannon joining us for a week. And we will continue teasing those as the season goes on. But just a little idea of yeah. some of the guests we'll have. Some new guests, some returning, some of your favorites, some that will be... And yes, the next the next stream, fun. Matthew, is a Monday review. It will be Monday, August 22nd, the day right. after the premiere. But we will also have the George interview being released around the same time. But the next proper live stream will be Monday, August 22nd. That's right. Thanks to everyone who came to watch live or listen live. Thanks to Nina for a whole bunch of great notes. Check out goodqueenalley.tumblr.com with one L. Thank you to our patrons who make the show financially viable. We will keep churning out the content. And if you want to get the bonus content, sign up to be a patron or sign up to participate through Spotify. We've got a subscriber-only option there. You can also send a donation through our website. All of those methods get you a whole bunch of bonus content the best part of which is bonus episodes, but there's other stuff as well. Thanks to Joey, Jesse, Kevin, and Michael for our music and our maps. So good. So great. 
And of course, thanks to our mods. Y'all are doing great work over there on Facebook and Discord. I guess the job's about to get a little busier, but in a fun way with more discourse burbling up. We can tell that interest is building based on participation in threads, download numbers, things like that. And of course, that is exciting for everyone. The more, the merrier. Check out our Threadless Shop. We got some cool shirts available, stickers, new logos, new designs. So if you had checked it out before, time to circle back and look again because we've added a lot of new options. Yeah, and let us know if you order something, what color egg you pick. You can choose between rainbow, black and red, cream, blue, pink. Like, there's a bunch of choices. So I'm really excited to see what is the most popular egg color. Honestly, like I want to know. I think it'll be the rainbow egg, though. I'm the only one allowed to get the pink one. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah she's the only one allowed to get the pink egg. I did. Cho- I did include a pink egg just for Sean. Pink of house beard. <laughs> I want to point out, like, or we're talking about shirts. That tomorrow is the series finale of Better Call Saul, which I've just become obsessed with. And I, I, Sean I is made wearing one video. a Better Call Saul shirt right now. Yeah. To be clear for this all of our it. listeners, not watchers. Yeah. Uh, I love that show. I, I really believe it's the best show ever made. And this final season is just even better than I thought it could possibly be. And I, I'm just obsessing over it so much. that I, I, I don't think I'm just going to let it go when it's over. I, I, I made one video on YouTube about it already. I think I'm going to, I'm kind of like settling in my mind. I want to just go through every episode. Do a whole full rewatch. Yeah, do a rewatch from the beginning yeah. and just talk about every episode. I think it's so rich and so layered and so, mm-hmm. I don't know, so well produced on every level. I can't. I, I'm in all of it. So. Well, th- th- I encourage you to do that, Sean. And you've got the you've got the thing that you most need, which is, like you said, you're really, really, really into it. Yeah. <laughs> that is why yeah, this podcast know. started, is because we were really, 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 really into a song of ice and fire and Game of Thrones, and here we are. I mean, ten years later, it's been a long time, but yeah, that is. I, I, I always tell people if you're going to start a podcast or YouTube channel, you have to be really into the thing you're doing because <laughs> there's going to be a lot of tedium that comes into it, and you have to to blow through that tedium to work through that tedium you've got to it's got to be worth it you got to really want to have those rewards and have the stuff that you get by going through the tedium yeah yeah you've got that yeah i hope you hope you roll with it yeah i've been uh, in, involved on like i don't want to spoil stuff so i've been like in groups i've been like in reddit or yeah, facebook yeah. groups about it and i've written not i don't think i'm exaggerating i think i probably went and tens of thousands of words about this show so far. <laughs> nice, yeah. I need to get it consolidated and in a better format or better put out there. But yeah, the, the, you know, multiple people have said, I can tell your passion just in the way you write about it. So yeah, yeah. it really does. A passion is one of the best things you can have about, about a project or just in general. So yeah, unless your passion is conquering Dorn, that's not so healthy. <laughs> <laughs> Literally not so healthy for your <laughs> army and the people you're trying to conquer. So that's it for today. We will be back even though next week and for the next several weeks won't be as much about reading. I still encourage you to Valar Rereus. Oh, did you not plug Gearby Dragons? Oh, I'm sorry. I just wanted to give them a plug that they are covering fall winter preview shows right now. They started, y'all. Now, oh, I will say, oh, there are previews to shows that are coming yes, up. Andor, House of the Dragon, all that. So if you're excited for a bunch of shows coming out in the next month or two, go join them. And now I get to say, Valar, re-read us. And re-watch <laughs> us, too. 